Throughout the country and throughout the world, we're seeing more and more spiritual manifestations. Revivals, declarations, speaking in tongues, and even some miracles. But are these things signs of a great awakening, or are they false signs and wonders of the second beast? That's up next on The Dance of Life. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Dance of Life podcast. My name is Tudor Alexander, I'm your host. Thanks so much for being here with me today, appreciate you. If you've been with me throughout this whole journey, it's uh, it's getting hot, so make sure you subscribe <laughs> and do so on my website because you just never know with any of these platforms, my website is the safest way to stay in touch. I usually send out emails once or twice a week, but nevertheless, it's not going to spam you and it's the best way to stay in touch. But In either case, today we are continuing our End Times series. This is episode 20, and we're we're in the heat of it now. We've been talking about the image of the beast in the last episode. We've talked about the second beast. We've identified who Mystery Babylon is. So if you are just joining us, you have a lot of catching up to do in in a good way because there's a lot of really great information in this series and the previous episodes. It's designed to be a resource for you, so make sure you take notes. And you really study these things because we are living in a vast disinformation age, right? And again, if you are, if you have been with me so far, you know that Satan's probably released, and that's why. That's why there's so much disinformation. How people are interpreting the end times, by and large, is wrong, and it's exact. It's wrong for exactly the reason that Satan is setting up a false expectation the expectation of a golden age where he will masquerade as a false Christ and people will bow down and worship, very possibly. I don't know if that's exactly what's going to happen, but I think it's a very real possibility, especially given the fact that all of these false ways of interpreting the end times, which really, if we put it under the umbrella of futurism, right, and very literal way of reading certain things like the temple, the 1260-day period, all these things that we've talked about, But again, if you're new, if you haven't heard this kind of stuff, then go check out those previous episodes. The first 10 are going to be a great resource for you to understand the millennial kingdom. And then we started to dive into Bible prophecy, into Daniel, into John's revelation, and how all these things are building one on one, uh, one on top of uh, of each other, and ultimately to identify who this mystery Babylon is. Who is this antichrist power that's been around for a very long time? And that Antichrist power is the papacy. It's the Catholic Church as an institution. Not Catholics, right, necessarily, as people who are just going to church, they're going to Catholic Church. Absolutely not. But the institution, the papacy specifically, and its military arm, which is the Jesuits, who have influenced everything in history. And indeed, John calls this institution the mother of abominations and harlots of the earth. And as you have seen so far, that is very true. Very, very true. We looked at the French Revolution and how that spawned communism and all these dialectics. We're going to look at Islam very near future, probably the next episode, maybe the episode after that. I don't remember what my outline says, but we're going to look at Islam and how the Catholic Church started Islam. We're going to look at so many things. Today we're looking at the counterfeit spirit of the beast, which is the charismatic movement. It's going to be a couple things, but I, I want you to really see how that title, The Mother of Abominations of the Earth, is just so fitting. So we've identified who Mystery Babylon is. It's the woman 
who sits on seven hills. And that woman, which is a church, there's no other identifier than Rome, because Rome is the city of seven hills. But we've identified who Mystery Babylon is, and as a result, we had to identify the second beast that comes out of the earth, meaning a non-populated area, and yet exercises the power of the first beast, which means it was a superpower. And we looked at that in the last two episodes. We looked at the second beast, who that is, and it's the United States. And we looked at the image of the beast, which is this representation of the first beast. Remember, if you're if you're building an image of something, you're building a representation of something else, right? Well, the first beast was a church-state union that ruled the world, the modern world, with an iron fist. It was a union of religion and politics. So the second beast, which is the United States, will build that structure again, will build a representation. It will build a government that mimics and resembles the government that ruled the earth for over a thousand years, which was a religio-political system. And that's going to happen in the United States, and it's going to deceive the world by false signs and wonders. So the United States will act as a false prophet to the first beast and get people to adopt this style of government throughout the world. And in that way, Revelation 17 will be fulfilled, where it says the kings of the earth will give their power to the woman riding the beast. And so we aren't there yet, but in the last episode, we looked at how the image of the beast is being constructed, how religion and politics in the United States is not nearly as separated as people think it is. In fact, it's extremely united, and every day it's getting blurrier and blurrier until one day people will think that that's a good thing and will want it. They will want unification of church and state. And of course, who is behind that? The Catholic institution, because it is fulfilling Bible prophecy. So stop looking at Israel. Stop listening to people who are talking about the rapture. Stop listening to everything that's happening in Israel, Israel, Israel. This is a distraction. It's not about the third temple. It's not about whoever's going to walk in there and proclaim himself to be God. This is a false way of reading the Bible, and they are fulfilling it to fool people so that when that church union of uh, the church and state union comes, possibly with a false Christ attached to it, people will think that we're actually in the eternal state or in the millennial reign. Do you see how this works? They committed to a false prophecy in the Reformation because the reformers identified uniformly that the little horn power in Daniel and the woman riding the beast in Revelation is the papacy. That's a big problem. So they had to create a counter narrative. That counter narrative has been going strong for over 500 years, people. And we are now in the apex. So now here's the deal. They they created the counter prophecy. Of course, they have to fulfill it now. Do you see how this works? Why do you think that Theodore Herzl, the father of Zionism, met with the Pope in the early 1900s? A couple decades later, what happened? You had the wars, you had Hitler rise up, you had a reason to put the Jews back in Palestine and create a state, an artificial state. Do you see what's going on? Bible prophecy is being fulfilled. No, it's not. Not in the way people think it is, at least. They are engineering their false reading of scripture to lead people into a false golden age, into a church-state union where people will give their power and worship the beast. This is what's happening. But if you understand that beasts are political systems, if you understand who the first beast is, 
who Mystery Babylon is, who the second beast is, and how all these things are working together, you will not be deceived. And that's my goal with this whole series, really, is that you're not deceived because there is a lot of deception. So we looked at all these things. Again, an image is a representation of something. So the image of the beast is a a representation. It's a government that represents the first type of government that existed for over a thousand years, a religio-political system. Now, we looked last week at how that would be even possible to happen in the United States when supposedly we are the country of separation of church and state. And of course, we looked at the cultural and political aspects. We looked at a lot of great things, including the passion of the Christ, all these, the chosen, you know, all these Christian things that are seemingly Christian things that are happening in culture, where it's just becoming this ubiquitous thing that religion, religion, religion's part of who we are. And again, there's nothing wrong with putting Bibles in schools, but who is going to be in charge of the translation? That's the question. Who is going to be in charge of those efforts? That's what you have to ask yourself. You see, they use the carrot of bringing us back to Christian values, and this was a Christian nation. No, it was never a Christian nation. The founding fathers were Illuminati Luciferians that by the time they took over and founded it as a nation in the late 1700s, America was a Luciferian experiment. Not a hundred years later did they receive the Statue of Liberty, which, as we saw, is really just Lucifer. It's the sun god Mithra. And if you know anything about history, every time the people worshipped the sun, it really was worshipping Lucifer. Lucifer has had many names throughout different cultures, but it's really just a tied to sun worship. And the Statue of Liberty is Lucifer the light bearer that brings enlightenment to the world. America is chosen by the powers that be, to bring the light to the world. America is the false prophet. It's not an individual. It's a system. The American system is the false prophet. And look what we have in America. We have televangelism, the word of faith movement, prosperity movement, prosperity gospel, new thought, progressive Christianity, the new age movement, hypercharismatics, the Pentecostal movement, mega churches like Bethel and uh, Hillsong, the NAR movement, New Apostolic Reformation, false revivals. You know, again, what's a revival? We'll talk about that. But you have all these, these the commercialization and pop culturalization of Christianity. All these TikTok prophets talking about how God gave them a dream and how they're, they're seeing the rapture is going to come soon. People are getting their theology off TikTok, which is very sad to me. And of course, you have Hollywood, too. We talked about how Hollywood in the last episode was really a Roman Catholic Jesuit tool to shape culture. The Chosen, The Passion of the Christ, movies about Catholic nuns and priests, all these things are shaping reality and people don't realize it. And that's the point. The snake, you know, works its way around you until, you know, it's constricting you slowly until you run out of breath and you can't breathe and you don't even realize it. So these are so, these are the false signs and wonders that we talked about culturally that the beast, the second beast, which is the United States, is working to deceive people into worshiping the first beast, paying their obedience to the first beast. And when the system is finally built, the image of the beast is being built right now, meaning that government that is a union of church and state, that is being built right now. We are in transit. It's going to be finished, who knows when, probably in the next couple of years. I personally believe that when Trump comes back into office, which he will, he will activate. It's going to switch from dark to light. This is what it's all about, folks. Dark to light. Not the light of God, but the false light of Lucifer. 
and Trump's going to bring it back. And that's the whole reason why you had Biden in the first place. You think all this stuff isn't choreographed? It's so that you would beg for Trump to come back. So you would beg for him to be your savior politically. And that's what people are doing. Oh my gosh, it's the white hats are in control. We're going to have a quantum financial system. He's going to save us. He's going to destroy the deep state. You really think that this system that's been around for thousands of years is finally getting destroyed by some rogue billionaire? Come on. Look, I believed it too. I believed it 100%. I will be the first person to admit. I bought a ton of gold. I thought, you know, Trump was going to win in 2020 and we're going to be in the golden age and my gold is going to make me a millionaire and just how foolish I was. And thank God that God opened my eyes to my foolishness. But nonetheless, there's there's nobody coming to save you other than Jesus. So you have to realize that both sides are controlled. But this is what's happening. I believe Trump, who is a Jesuit indoctrinated, Jesuit controlled, you know, figure of the light side, just like Hitler. Look, I'm not saying this to insult anybody and don't read too much into it. But if you know your history, Hitler had a good relationship with the Pope. Hitler was the light side that they propped up. Again, remember, what's the opposite of church and state union? Communism, right? Hitler was a nationalist, fascist, where it was very much, it had Jesuit Catholic underpinnings of, of this Constantinian type of empire that, that the Third Reich wanted to be, if you really look into it. And that was fighting against the dark, deep state of the communist regime. And of course, the light side lost, and we've been under the communist paradigm since then, but that was on purpose to build the final push against that system back into a church-state union. All this stuff is not happening by accident, folks. It's happening as a ping-pong to, to get you to the capstone on the Kabbalah tree, to get you to the capstone on the Illuminati pyramid. They all work, Both sides work for the same agenda. It's just about, okay, how much do we need to push people to the left so that they will accept the drastic reality of an ultra-right church-state union. What do we need to do to make that seem like a good thing? Do you see how this works? The Bible says don't swerve to the left or to the right over 16 times. There's a reason for that, because the devil always gets you on the right or on the left. He gets you with the extremes. Christ said to walk the narrow road. That's a very specific thing, the narrow road, the road that's in between these two things. Don't swerve to the right or to the left. And the left has been very deceived, obviously, with the whole jib-jab and everything that's happened in the last couple of years. But the right is up next. And if you're a right person, like I was, because most Christians are naturally conservative, the Bible is naturally conservative. If you're a right person, you will be deceived. If you don't wake up to these things that we're talking about here with the image of the beast, with the false prophet, with the second beast, with Mystery Babylon, you have to realize who the real enemy is. So if you live in the United States, we are in the belly of the beast, and we'll experience the system first. So that's going to be fun. But in this episode, we're not talking about the cultural, political stuff. We're going to talk about the theological stuff. Again, this is a continuation of how the image of the beast is being built. But part of that image being built is a counterfeit spirit. It's a counterfeit spirit, and that's why I titled this episode The Counterfeit Spirit of the Beast. And what we're going to cover are many things. We have a lot of stuff to look through today, so it's probably going to be another 
longer episode, but hey, look, these are resources for you. So I hope you enjoy them. But we're going to look at how Protestants are reuniting with the papacy. There's no no more Protestant revolution anymore, the Reformation. We're going to look at the new perspective on Paul in in evangelical circles. So if you've never heard of the new perspective on Paul, it's a theological thing. It's a, it's a shift in how people understand Paul's letters. And it's got total Catholic underpinnings and ecumenical underpinnings under it. But again, there's just another, these are the things I'm outlining today are really the main things, but there's so many, there's so many, you could spend another 20 episodes on this stuff, which I won't, but I want to give you the big picture. Again, you can get lost in this stuff. The point is to see the big picture, to see the truth. And the final thing I want to share with you is the charismatic movement and how that's also helping to bridge the gap. Again, remember, America is the place where this new system of church and state will be finished and it will be exported to the rest of the world. So that means that religion and politics and culture is all converging into one here in the United States. And you will see how that's very true. And if you saw the last episode, you already know that's true. But in this episode, we're going to get into it. So let's start and just right into it. Protestants reuniting with the papacy. All right. So I get all my tabs here. There's so many tabs. We're going to look at a couple articles here. Okay. This one is titled James Dobson's James Dobson, Charles Colson, uh, meet at the Vatican with the Pope. Some of these don't scroll to the side, but let's read it. James Dobson and Charles Colson were two participants in a conference at the Vatican last week on the global economy's impact on families. Okay, so what are two Protestant leaders doing with Pope John Paul II? But anyway, during the conference, the two Protestants met with the Pope. Dobson later told Catholic News Service that though he, was the, though, though he has theological differences with the Roman Catholicism, when it comes to the family, there is far more agreement than disagreement. And with regard to moral issues, from abortion to premarital sex, safe sex ideology and homosexuality, I find more in common with Catholics than with some of my evangelical brothers and sisters. Well, can you imagine? You might as well just unite at that point because what the heck? Who cares about the doctrine of justification by faith alone through grace alone when, you know, all these cozy things like the family and premarital sex, we agree on. So, you know, these things, you know, these are the real things to worry about. Do you see what's going on? All these cozy things, the social justice gospel. Who cares about doctrine when we can unite around social issues? That's what really you have to pay attention to. Okay, this next one is a snap or a snapshot from an old status update by Tony Palmer. He's long gone now, but he was a famous Protestant uh, speaker and teacher and so on. But this is a snapshot from his Facebook status. It's kind of hard to find, but basically this is what he says. Friends and companions, I'm on my way, I'm just going to read it here, to Rome for two highly important meetings with A, the Pontifical Office for the Promotion of Christian Unity. That should be a red flag. And B, Pope Francis. We're discussing the variety and breadth of all the feedback from all the publications of Pope Francis' video, The Miracle of Unity Has Begun. Gosh, what a miracle a false miracle of the Antichrist. It has been viewed in its various forms more than 800,000 times. And we now have a large delegation of non-Roman Catholic church leaders who want to meet with Pope Francis and take the next step towards unity. Please keep us in your prayers. We're living in a historic moment. Your brother 
in Christ. Your Judas in Christ is what that should read. You see what's going on here? People are marveling after the beast, just like Revelation 13 says. They're marveling after the beast. Gosh, the Pope is such an amazing... And you'll see all these quotes. We haven't even started. All these Protestant leaders are marveling after the Pope and wanting unity and talking about, we've got to take the next step. The Protestant Reformation is over. That's what Tony Palmer said famously in one of his speeches. It's over. The protest is over. Really? Well, wait a minute. Why, was, why did the protest begin? Did we ever address those factors? No, we didn't. In fact, Protestants have merged slowly and slowly back to the Mother Church because of the counter-reformation, as we have talked about so many times. This next one says, The story behind Brother Copeland's papal visit. This is Kenneth Copeland, of a notorious prosperity word of faith teacher, who you should definitely mark and avoid. But let's see. Look at him. So nice and just intimate with Pope Francis. They're just sharing such important moments together. June 23rd, 2014. Kenneth Copeland, along with James and Betty Robeson and other evangelical church leaders, met with the Pope in Rome at the Pope's request. At the Pope's request. What fellowship does light have with darkness unless they are both darkness? Let's see. Anything else in here? No, I think that's, uh, yeah, that's the thing I wanted to highlight is basically the Pope requested to meet with Kenneth Copeland. I think I have another one about Kenneth Copeland, but we'll see. Mormon president and Pope Francis meet for the first time after decades of hidden diplomacy. Wait a minute. Hidden diplomacy? Why is there hidden diplomacy? Why is there diplomacy in the first place between churches? Diplomacy is a political thing that happens. It's not between churches, unless churches are also empires, which is interesting, right? The two leaders met for 33 minutes at the Vatican Exchange Gifts. You should know that when they report things in the news and they give you certain numbers, that every number means something. So 33, hopefully you know what that means. It's not the the age Christ was when he was crucified. The day before Russell M. Nelson was due to dedicate the first Mormon temple in Rome. Gosh, my gosh, look at the alliance that's happening. The first Mormon temple in Rome. This is in 2019. And let's see if we can get past these stupid ads. Okay, let's read what it says. The head of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints met with the Pope for the first time on Saturday, an event that reportedly followed decades of behind-the-scenes relationship building between denominations whose leaders share a concern over secularism. Let's take a quick break right here and remember the French Revolution. Do you see what's going on here? Secularism. What is secularism? And where did it come from? It came from the French Revolution, where atheism and communism and in the Enlightenment, all these things started to come into the culture. But why did they come into the culture? It tells you right here. Gosh, we're concerned over secularism. Now you have this duality of the church, the institutionalized churches, the beast, versus this big bag boogeyman of communism and secular. Oh my gosh, people aren't believing in God. We should. What's the solution to the problem? What's the solution? It's institutionalized religion. Do you see how this works? It's ping and pong, left and right, get you to, oh, we're both concerned over secularism, and we're just so concerned for people's well-being that, that we want them to get out of that and into what? A private relationship with Jesus Christ? No. A relationship with the Pope and the beast system. That's what this is all about. But moving on, Pope Francis and President Russell M. Nelson, both men who hold offices of profound spiritual significance for their faiths, 
met for 33 minutes, there it is again, at the Vatican to discuss the shared priorities of protecting religious rights, traditional family values, and young people in opposing secularism, according to the Mormon Church affiliated with Desert News. 33 minutes means they have the Freemason blessing. But again, it's just social issues, man. It's just like, oh, we care about the family. We care about opposing, you know, communism, secularism, young people. Wait a minute. What relationship does the Mormon church have to the, I mean, Catholic church, they're both institutions, but Mormons don't even believe in the Trinity. So anyway, the visit comes a day before Nelson was to dedicate the first Mormon temple in Rome. We know that. And of course, we know that the Freemasons were established, or uh, the Mormons were established by Brigham Young and Joseph Smith, who were both Freemasons. Look up, look it up. Continuing on, we talked about our mutual concern for the people who suffer throughout the world and want to relieve human suffering. Oh my gosh, just just sounds so good when the snake is slithering its tongue in your ear, Mr. Nelson told his church news website. We talked about the importance of religious liberty. There's that term again, that Jesuit term, religious liberty. Every time you hear that, that means they want you to adopt their religion. Because in countries that have Catholicism as a dominant religion, they are very much not for religious liberty. Not anymore, at least. Only in countries where Catholicism is not the dominant religion. The importance of the family, our mutual concern for the youth of the church, for the secularization of the world, and the need for people to come to God and worship him. I agree, but how are we talking that people will do this? To come to the church or to come to a personal relationship with Jesus and to read the Bible? Definitely not the second one. Pray to him and have the stability that faith in Jesus Christ will bring in their lives. You see, also, like, this is like all these fleshly goals. It's not about salvation, right? It's not, hey, be forgiven of your sins, and that way you can have eternal life and be resurrected and live with Christ forever. It's experience the feeling of stability. Yeah, that cozy feeling of comfort that religion gives you. It's that stability that that Jesus Christ gives you. You know, just having that church and the people that you go and associate with and, and having just that institution that takes care of you. That's what this is about. And it's about social justice. And we want to relieve human suffering. And all this stuff is worldly, fleshly results. There's social. This is a social justice gospel. This is not about the true gospel. Moving on. The two groups work together on relief efforts in 43 countries, of course. And what are they doing in those countries? They are preparing them to adopt the beast system. What a sweet and wonderful man he is, Mr. Nelson said of Francis. The Mormon Church News site reported, and how fortunate the Catholic people are to have such a gracious, concerned, loving, and capable leader. The world is marveling after the beast, just like John foresaw. This next one says, uh, Olstein meets with Pope Francis at the Vatican. Another prosperity preacher, word of faith, megachurch leader. This is in 2014. And let's see what it says. I mean, if you know anything about Joel Olstein, this is not a surprise, but let's see. Olstein said, Friday, it was a great honor to represent the pastors of America in the meeting with the pontiff, whom he described as warm, personable, and full of joy. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. Back up for a second. Olstein said Friday, it was a great honor to represent the pastors of America. So he's representing the pastors of America to meet with the pontiff. What, is, what does that tell you right off the bat? Discernment is important. I like the fact that this Pope is trying to make the church larger, not smaller. Of course you do, because you're on the same side. And of course, these people take the word church 
and conflate it with a physical institution. Of course, we want to make the church larger. As people who want to spread the gospel, you want to incorporate more and more true believers into the church. The church is the fellowship of believers. It is the relationship that the bride has with Christ. It's not an institution. But you see, this is how these people work. They use words that sound good, but they actually mean a fleshly, worldly reality. We want to make the church bigger. Yeah, that's a good thing. Well, wait a minute. Are we talking about the body of believers by spreading the true gospel? Or are we are we talking about institutionalized religion? You figure out which one they're talking about because it's pretty obvious. Osteen said he's not pushing people out, but making the church much more inclusive. That resonated with me. Gosh, you know, what really should resonate with you is whether the gospel is being preached or not. The unofficial meeting also included Senator Mike Lee, Republican of Utah, former U.S. Interior Secretary Dirk Kempthorne, Tim Timmons, a pastor and author based in Newport Beach, California, and Gail D.B., president of Westmont College in Santa Barbara, California, according to the Desert News of Salt Lake City. What are all these people doing meeting with the Pope? This is my question, and it should be your question too. Why are all these, you know... um, Officials, public officials, school officials, people who are in political situations, why are they meeting with the Pope? Well, the Pope's job is to administer the church and help people learn the gospel. That is what's what it should be. But of course, the Pope was never established to do that. The Pope was established as the king, as a high priest, Pontifex Maximus, to take the place of Christ as king and priest on earth. We had very little time with him, Osteen said. We are going to have more time, but a cardinal died that morning, right? Pope Francis asked the group to pray for him and to pray for peace in the Middle East. Osteen said, here's another thing you got to be used to pray for peace in the Middle East. What is, what is that actually telling you? Gosh, there's so much to talk on all these, and I, this is going to be a long episode, but pray for peace in the Middle East. Do you understand what's going on here? He is subtly acknowledging their false prophecy because everybody knows according to the false prophecy, that oh, when peace comes to the Middle East, that's going to be you know the Bible prophecy unfolding. So we got to pray for the peace in the Middle East. And so when you accept that in your mind, you are accepting the false eschatology that the Vatican has created. Yeah, we want peace. Look, there's peace, or I should say there's chaos everywhere, dude. Are you kidding me? How many places in the world like India and... Pakistan and Africa that are constantly under duress. How many millions of children in Africa are dying of of hunger and, and just so many problems throughout the world, everywhere in the world, everywhere in the world, not just in the Middle East. But of course, this is how he subtly gets you. He's a, a master tactician. The Pope, I'll give it to him. He's a master of using language in a subtle way that that if you aren't just sharp in your word and paying attention, it just slithers into your ear and it just kind of cooks in there, you know? So you have to really be very sharp. And you do that by reading the Bible and studying. As part of a visit, let's, <laughs> I guess there's more to read in this. As part of a visit to promote interfaith understanding and ecumenical prayer, the meeting with Pope Francis was arranged by the International Foundation, a private nonprofit organization, Lee told the Desert News. So we have an international, we'll have to look at this, International Foundation arranged to basically promote interfaith understanding. What is, what fellowship can you have 
with somebody that believes that Christ has to be sacrificed every week and you have to devour his flesh and blood, what fellowship can you have with somebody like that? There is no interfaith understanding. What fellowship can you have with somebody who's a Muslim or a Jew who believes that Jesus either didn't get crucified or Jesus wasn't the Messiah? According to John, that is antichrist. You can't have fellowship with somebody or understand. I don't have any understanding with somebody who rejects Christ. And I'm not going to seek common understanding. I'm going to seek them to understand the gospel so that we can have a common understanding. You see how this works? Again, it's just it's just this little soft language to massage your brain and to, to make you just complacent. More than 50,000 charismatic Roman Catholics also attended the convocation during which the Pope knelt on the ground to pray. The Desert News reported the day before the meeting with Pope Francis, Osteen said he attended Mass in St. Peter's Square with 100,000 people. So he's paying, you know, a Mass is a sacrifice. We saw that from previous episodes. Catholicism teaches that the Mass is a sacrifice. You're sacrificing Jesus. You are literally, in their mind, attending a sacrifice. I will never attend a Mass. Not even if you force me. I mean, obviously, if you force, then it is what it is. But I would never attend a Mass. Right? Ultimately, right? So if they put a gun to your head and they say, go to this Mass, then that will be the mark of the beast, and you have to deny that. Because who knows what the mark of the beast is, but ultimately it might involve the Eucharist, it might involve Sunday worship. There's a lot of theories, and we'll certainly cover them in the future. But it may come down to that where you will have to reject such a thing on the the penalty of not buying or selling or possibly even death. So stay sharp, because look what's happening. These people are wandering after the beast. He's attending Mass. He's calling for ecumenism. I mean, Joel Osteen is respected, sadly, by so many people as a legitimate source for theology. And this is what he's doing behind their backs. Of course, they don't even realize that Catholicism is the beast. And so they think, oh my gosh, it's a good thing that he's meeting with the Pope. Yeah, the Pope is a good authority. Maybe we we should, you know, unite the religions and, and have a leader like the Pope who's just so nice and he's just in charge of everything. Gosh, it just makes sense, doesn't it? See how all this works? The false prophet is working away with its false prophets, like Joel Olstein and Kenneth Copeland and all these things. Okay, this next one is from the Christian Post, and it's it's talking about that thing we just talked about, but I believe it's, this is Paul, uh, Pastor Joel Olstein, Mormon senator, other U.S. senators meet with Pope Francis in Rome. Again, what are all these people doing with the Pope? This should, like If this doesn't res- raise a red flag for you, then you've got a little more history to learn, but I wanted to look at something here. Here we go. The Fellowship, or the International Foundation, reportedly organized the trip. The Fellowship is led by Evangelical Christian Minister Douglas Coe. Uh-oh. Wait a minute, so you're telling me the foundation that organized a trip expressly to promote the unity of a one-world religion, basically, is held by an, is led by an Evangelical Christian minister? Isn't that interesting? who was noted by the Vatican Formation Service as one of the many guests received by Pope Francis on Thursday, cited simply as Doug Coe of the National Prayer Breakfast USA and Entourage. The fellowship is the main organizer behind the annual National Prayer Breakfast held in Washington, D.C. There it is again. Image of the beast. What is that doing? Again, I, from one perspective, I think it's great to have prayer. I think it's great that you know we are of one mind. But this is not what this is about. 
to, to organize a prayer breakfast in Washington, D.C., in the country where supposedly church and state are separate. This is the image of the beast being constructed. But this is what I want to show you is the evangelical pastor was the one behind <laughs> sending Joel Osteen and all these other people into an ecumenical, you know, elbow rubbing with the Pope. It's crazy. It really, like I said, in the beginning of this couple episodes that you're going to think I'm crazy. Hopefully you're not going to think I'm crazy anymore by seeing that these things are real, that the image of the beast is being built and we are heading towards a one world religion under the Pope. And it's going to start in the U.S. Joel Osteen meets Pope Francis with a prominent Mormon. Again, this is another part of it, but this is, these are different articles of the same thing, but there's each of them cover different things. So this one says uh, something about an interview on the news. A couple of days before Christmas 2007, Osteen was on Fox News Sunday with Chris Wallace. What follows is a partial transcript and clip of their interaction. Wallace, what about Mitt Romney? And I've got to ask you the question because it is a question whether it should be or not in this campaign. Is a Mormon a true Christian? Osteen, well, in my mind they are. Mitt Romney has said that he believes in Christ as his Savior, and that's what I believe. So, you know, I'm not the one to judge the little details of it. (laughs) Really, it's not a little detail, but anyway. So I believe they are. And so, you know, Mitt Romney seems like a man of character and integrity to me, and I don't think he would, he would, anything would stop me from voting for him if that's what I felt like. Again, church and state unifying. It's in the background. It's normal to be talking on the news about who's voting for what, even if you are a pastor that influences a lot of people. This is the image of the beast. Moving on, Wallace says, so for instance, when people start talking about Joseph Smith, the founder of the church, good thing he pressed him on it and the golden tablets in the upstate New York, and God assumes the shape of a man. Do you not get hung up in those theological issues? Good question, Wallace. Good job. Let's see what Osteen says. I probably don't get hung up in them because I haven't really studied them. There you go. His his just southern, soft drawl that just lulls you to sleep. He's just so charismatic. Or I've thought about them. And you know, I just try to let God be the judge of that. I mean, I don't know. I certainly can't say that I agree with everything that I've heard about it. But from what I've heard from Mitt, when he says that Christ is his Savior, to me, that's a common bond. Man, this guy is just such a slick-talking, used car lot salesman, man. These people are just slick-talking snakes. I hope you see through it. First off, Mormons, the Book of Mormon has so many contradictions with the Bible, it's not even serious. not even funny how many contradictions there are, historically, doctrine-wise. So... Right away, that's a red flag, because the Holy Spirit obviously did not write both books. You have to pick and choose. Now, I picked the Bible, because it's obvious that the Holy Spirit wrote the Bible, but the Book of Mormon is a farce. It's created. Joseph Smith had his revelations from an angel. The Apostle Paul warns expressly. In fact, he uses the example that even if an angel appears to you, remember, the devil appears in an angel of light. Just like with Muhammad, just like with the Mormons, there's a common thread in all these little apparitions. An angel of light appeared to him and gave him some revelation that we don't even have proof of with all the historical things that are claimed in it. No proof. On top of the fact Joseph Smith was a Freemason, so was Brigham Young. On top of the fact you look at the Mormon institutionalized religion, it's a works-based religion. They do not believe in the Trinity. They do not believe in the preexistence of Christ. They use all the same words. Yes, they call Jesus the Son of God. Yes, they call him Jesus Christ. But what that means to them is different what it actually means. The Son of, in the Bible, 
Angels are called sons of God. We are called sons of God if we are adopted into the church through being born again. So obviously, when you call Jesus the Son of God, it doesn't mean what it means for us. It's a big difference. So you have to use context, understand what does it actually mean for Jesus to be the Son of God? Does it mean he's created? No, of course not. He's the second person of the Trinity. He's the eternal Son. He's the firstborn among that term. He is the pre-existent creator that created the world. But in the Mormon theology, you get your own planet. God used to be a man, and you can be like him. You can be like God. So how can you, how can you say as an influential pastor to millions of people with all his books and his megachurches and all this stuff, how can you say that you believe that Mormons are Christians? Christians believe in the pre-existence of Christ. They believe that Christ is God. Mormons do not believe that Christ is a pre-existent God. So Mormons are not Christians. Now, I feel for them. I believe there's a lot of genuinely, you know, genuine people who want to have a relationship with God and please God, but they are being deceived. They are being deceived by their works-based religion. And as a pastor, when you're put on the grill like that and you make the choice to be comfortable and to be a soothsayer, that should be a red flag for anybody with at least a shred of discernment as to who this person serves, Joel Olstein. So anyway, those are the couple of things about Joel Olstein. but moving on, Pope Francis, a breeze of fresh air. My goodness, what's this all about? Let's see. Morgan said this to visiting guest Pastor Rick Warren of the Saddleback Church as Warren replied, I am nothing but impressed by this new Pope. So Rick Warren, also another heretical pastor, very impressed with the news with Pope Francis. Amazing. First place in my book. The three most important characteristics for leadership are humility, integrity, and generosity. Wandering after the beast. What fellowship does a Protestant have with the Pope? I mean, Luther and all the reformers would be rolling in their graves right now. Warren followed by stating that Pope Francis has shown all three in the first months of his leadership. He paid his own hotel bill is disinterested in the bling and accoutrements associated with Vatican power, (laughs) right, and has spent a lifetime having worked with the poor. According to to the same Time Magazine article, to Francis, poverty isn't simply about charity, it's about justice. There's a social justice gospel again, nothing to do with actual salvation, but with worldly results. The church, by extension, should not reflect Rome. It should mirror the poor. Oh gosh, it sounds so good. It really does. Also on that same page, it stated that Pope Francis had already begun an initiative to increase close monitoring of Vatican finances, followed by disclosing its findings in an annual report. The first time the Vatican had done so in 125 years. Perhaps Pope Francis has always taken to heart and mind one particular psalm in the Bible. Defend the poor and fatherless, do justice to the afflicted and the needy. Psalm 82, verse 3. Oh my gosh, I mean, it sounds just so good. The Pope is doing so much for the poor and just, he's just somebody we can trust, man. He's just such a good, good figure that, you know, he should be in charge. Do you see where this is going? Where all these people are marveling after the beast and giving away their power so easily because they have been deceived. Mega church pastor Rick Warren joins Pope Francis in support of a common mission. What does a pastor have with the Pope 
in common? I really don't know. There's really nothing in common if you're a true Protestant, but he's not a true Protestant. Founder of Saddleback Church draws ire of fellow Protestants for Rome-leaning views. Well, of course he should. Pastor Rick Warren has called on non-Catholic Christians to join with Pope Francis and the Catholic Church in pursuing of their common goals. What common goals are that? I mean, again, they're going to dress it up with all this social justice stuff that we care about the family, you know, we care about young people, we care about the poor. And then, again, remember how all this stuff works. It works gradually. It works in the background of your mind. It works in, look, seduction, okay? Seduction, if you've ever read about seduction, I don't read those things anymore, but when I was not born again, you learn about these types of things through psychology. If you learn about manipulation, if you learn about all these types of things, how is seduction done? Is it done <laughs> like brashly? No, it's done one step at a time, slowly getting you comfortable, slowly, okay, you know, I might touch your shoulder here a little bit, then if you if you don't pull your shoulder away, then that means I can go a little further. You know, all these types of things are the same thing in politics. At first, it starts with these little committees where they're, gosh, you know, we're doing so many, like the Mormons and the Catholics, we, we do so many things in 43 countries, we're helping the poor, and gosh, you know, it's stories, people get acclimated to these things, and they get used to it, it gets a little closer, then a little closer, then a little closer, then you compromise, then you compromise, and then pretty soon, you wake up and you regret it, right? And so this is really what the point is, because this is exactly what's happening, and people have to open their eyes, but they're not opening their eyes because their eyes are focused on Israel. The Antichrist power has put your face and pointed it towards Israel so that you don't see all the seductive things it's doing in the background. Fox News. Protestant pastor gets praise from Catholics for his comments on Holy Communion. Gosh, here's another superstar that's Francis Chan, man. Now, I'm not going to read too much of this, really, but if you look into Francis Chan, this is from 2020, he has just warmed up to the whole Eucharist idea, and he just he's just going on TV, he's going on different things. Oh, you know, I, maybe the Eucharist is really this really awesome thing that maybe we should be thinking about to have a better communion with Christ, to have a higher union. He's just, he's so deceived. He's literally becoming a Catholic and leading people into the most Catholic things, which is transubstantiation, one of them at least. And again, just more pastors coming to unity with the Catholic Church. Pope Francis's deep ties to evangelicals. Really? He has deep ties to Protestants? That means the Protestant Reformation is over. Isn't that funny? I mean, I'm not going to read this article either. There's just so many. I'll cite them as usual in my description that you can reference, but... Why does Pope Francis have deep ties to evangelicals? That's That should be a question on everybody's mind. Pope at Charismatic Rally and Stadium invites them to the Vatican in 2017. So there was a, a rally of 50,000 Catholic Charismatics in Rome's Olympic Stadium, and Pope Francis admitted he was not always comfortable with the way they prayed. But he knelt on stage as they prayed for him and over him by singing and speaking in tongues. In the early years of the Charismatic Renewal in Buenos Aires, I did not have much love for charismatics, the Pope said. I said of them, they seem like samba school. Oh, gosh, Pope, you're such a funny guy with your dialectics of charismatic and non-charismatic. Little by little, though, he came to see how much good the movement was doing for Catholics and for the church. Of course, 
it's all dialectic. It's an illusion that he didn't like it. Of course, he knows the purpose of the charismatic movement because the Catholic Church began the Catholic, the charismatic movement. He told a gathering organized by International Catholic Charismatic Renewal Services and the Catholic Fraternity of Charismatic Covenant Communities and Fellowships. Why did the church start, the Catholic Church start the charismatic movement? We'll find out. But it's not good. It certainly serves its purpose as Pope Francis recognized. And what is that purpose? What is the purpose? What is the ultimate purpose? It's Revelation 17, the woman riding the beast, where the kings of the earth will give their power back to the beast. You think the beast, after ruling for 1260 years with absolute godly power, right, that they're not going to want that back? You think such a system that controlled the entire world and everybody in it just got, you know, it just kind of poof, just went away? It didn't go away. It went underground, and then it came back, and now it's coming back in full force. Current events. Time to bury the hatchet. Let's see what this says. Rome's Holy Year of Mercy. That's an interesting time, which opened on December 8th, 2015, is presented as creating an opportunity for the world to look upon the Pope as a holy man as he is portrayed kneeling before the confessional. And the world will marvel after the beast. The Pope said, I have chosen the date of 8 December because of its rich meaning in the, de- in the recent history of the church. In fact, I will open the holy door on the 50th anniversary of the closing of the Second Vatican Ecumenical Council. The Catholic Church, as she holds high the torch of Catholic truth at this ecumenical council, wants to show herself a loving mother to all. There's the word mother. Why do they choose the word mother? Because it's mother of abominations. Patient, kind, moved by compassion and goodness toward her separated children. Of course, the mother, harlot, wants all her little harlots to come back. And they are coming back. What can we expect in 2017? In 2008, Jesuit professor Edward Kimmon, then the time general secretary of the Netherlands Bishops Conference, proclaimed that there remains hardly any reason to remain a Protestant. He saw Protestantism as an action group that forgot to dissolve itself in a group that had not organized or not recognized the significance of a global, visible leadership personality such as that of the Pope. Of course, you didn't recognize the beast, so you're just a problem. Moreover, he stated that he doubted that the Reformation would still exist after 2017, the year when Protestantism commemorates its 500th year of existence. And Protestantism, he said, should return to the mother church. So we are at that point in time, aren't we? We are 500 years now, a little over 500 years from when the Protestant Reformation first happened. And look where we are. The Protestants say that the Reformation is over. They're communing with the Pope. They're pushing interfaith councils. Do you think it's going to just float around like this? Or is it actually moving to a singularity. It's moving to a unification of church and state, and it will. It very much will. Look at these last couple ones. The Lutheran World Federation. This is from Conflict to Communion. This is a 100-page PDF. Lutheran Catholic Common Commemoration of the Reformation in 2017. So this is a document promoting Christian unity from conflict to communion. I mean, look, you got to read that and see this is the dragon talking. From conflict, meaning awakening, right? Awakening to the beast, to communion, which is basically adopting the beast back. 
So when you read this, it's, it seems like, oh, we're going from bad to good. But we're actually going from good to bad. Do you see how it's an inversion? Conflict, conflict is not bad. Conflict is good when it's aligned with the truth, right? If you have conflict over the truth, that's a good thing. You're not compromising your values. Same with communion. If it's communion over a lie, that's a bad thing. So again, this is, this is by the Lutheran World Foundation. They're already ready to bow down to the beast. Look at this one, Evangelicals and Catholics Together. Evangelical and Catholics Together is a 90, 1994 ecumenical document signed by leading evangelical and Catholic scholars in the United States. The co-signers of the document were, were Charles Colson and Richard Newhouse, representing each side of the discussions. Charles Colson was one of the dudes that went to see John Paul II, if you recall that first article. It was part of a larger ecumenical reproachment in the United States that had begun in the 1970s with the Catholic Evangelical Collaboration, also at the same time the charismatic movement was happening, interesting, and in later parachurch organizations such as the Moral Majority, we talked about that last episode, founded by Jerry Falwell at the urging of Francis Schaeffer and his son Frank Schaeffer. The statement is written as a testimony that spells out the need for Protestants and Catholics to deliver a common witness to the modern world at the eve of the third millennium. It draws heavily from the theology of the New Testament and the Trinitarian doctrine of the Nicene Creed. It seeks, the, it seeks to encourage what is known as spiritual ecumenism and the day-to-day -day ecumenism. There is no way to have ecumenism without compromising the truth. Ecumenism is a lie. It seems like a good thing because, oh, Christ wants us to be one. Yeah, to be of one mind with him. But when you believe that you have to sacrifice him and that you are the vicar of Christ on earth and that you can forgive sins just like he can, there's no ecumenism possible with such a religion. But look what's happening. And we talked about Jerry Falwell in The Image of the Beast, how even when he disbanded it in the late 80s, what did he say? <laughs> Our purpose has been achieved. The Christian right is solidly in position for the long haul. What do you think that means? All these Protestants, again, if you know secret societies, they're all part of secret societies. They're not, on the surface, they're one way. That's, that's an, an illusion of separation. But in the background, all of them pay homage to the same truth. It's a lie, really, but they pay homage to the same thing, the same false god. And so they, when he said our, our goal is complete, what was the goal? The goal was to nationalize Christianity in the United States. And of course, these things take time, especially when you are bouncing back from the communist paradigm, the leftist paradigm, liberalism, the, you know, secularism, atheism, you know, all these things that basically invaded the world after the French Revolution. So these things take time, but they'll get there. and They're already getting there. Joint Declaration on the Doctrine of Justification. Here's another document. All these documents that are ecumenical documents. The Joint Declaration on Doctrine of Justification is a document created and agreed to by the Catholic Church's Pontifical Council for Promoting Christian Unity and the Lutheran World Foundation in 1999 as a result of Catholic-Lutheran dialogue. It states that the churches now share a common understanding of our justification by God's grace through faith in Christ. This is nothing more than a step towards integration. Remember seduction. Seduction happens one innocent step at a time. And you have to be very wise to it. Otherwise, 
If you don't set boundaries in your discernment, you will be seduced. This is what happens. And these people know how to do this very masterfully. Evangelical focus in Europe. Is the Reformation over? This is in June of 2016. And again, we have our friend uh, Tony Palmer. Question, is the Protestant Reformation over? The late Tony Palmer replied in the affirmative, alluding to the 1999 Joint Declaration of Doctrine of Justification, which I just read about by the Lutheran World Foundation and the Roman Catholic Church. He openly proclaimed to an enthusiastic gathering at Kenneth Copeland's Eagle Mountain International Church that Luther's protest is over. This is what I was talking about earlier. Asked Palmer, if there is no more protest, how can there be a Protestant church? Maybe now we're all Catholics again. 1999 for Palmer marked the end of the Reformation. There you go. Traitors, sheeps and wol- uh, wolves in sheep's clothing. And traitors in our midst. False teachers, false prophets. Kenneth Copeland, you know all about him. Just total false teachers that needs to be marked and avoided. And, and Tony Palmer is just wandering after the beast. Oh, the protest is over. We're all Catholics. Really? Really? How can you be a Catholic? Catholicism teaches blasphemous things. We talked about that in the Exposing Mystery Babylon episode. Go check it out. There's like two hours there of literally example upon example of how the Catholic Church has twisted theology into a fleshly world, ultimately a satanic version of Christianity. That sounds crazy, but their God is not Jesus Christ. Their God is the false Christ, the Son, and it's a pagan religion. It is a pagan secret society religion that masquerades as a Christian religion. And so I pray that if you know anybody in that religion to help wake them up, send them these episodes. Maybe that will do it, but you never know. Some people are very stuck in their beliefs, but if God will open their eyes, he will do so. This is from a slide uh, presentation, Destroying Protestantism. It's a quote by G.B. Nicolini, which is uh, from the history of the Jesuits, their origin, progress, doctrine, and design. Uh, Henry B. Bone preface. So everything's cited. I cannot too much impress upon the minds of my readers that the Jesuits, by their very calling, by the very essence of their institution, are bound to seek by every means right or wrong the destruction of Protestantism. This is the condition of their existence, the duty they must fulfill or cease to be Jesuits. Accordingly, we must we find them in this evil dilemma. Either the Jesuits fulfill the duties of their calling or not. In the first instance, they must be considered as the biggest enemies of the Protestant faith. In the second, as bad and unworthy priests, and in both cases, too, therefore, to be equally regarded with aversion and distrust. True words. Now let's talk about this Seven Mountain Mandate. One more. Gosh, I mean, there's so much to this stuff, but, you know, we just, it is what it is. The Seven Mountain Mandate, also Seven Mountains Mandate, 7M, or Seven Mountains Dominionism, is a dominionist conservative Christian movement within Pentecostal and evangelical Christianity. Huh, what's the theory? The Seven Mountain Mandate is part of dominionism. Now, if you don't know what dominionism is, it is a theology, we'll read the Wikipedia on it. Also known as dominion is a group of Christian political ideologies that seek to institute a nation that is governed by Christians based on their understandings of biblical law. Extents of rule, extents of rule and ways of acquiring government authority are varied. So dominionism, really quick break before we continue this. Dominionism is Christian nationalism. A lot of 
seemingly good Protestant teachers, evangelical teachers, Pentecostal teachers, are dominionists. Now, if you remember from the very first episode of this series, where we talked about the various kinds of end times views, a lot of these people are post-millennialists. Now, what post-millennialism is, is the idea that Christ will show up after we, through our fleshly and sinful minds and hearts, somehow create a Christian golden age by implementing Christian nationalism in the whole world. And then Christ will show up because the world will be ready for him. Now, if you have a shred of discernment, just hearing those words, you should think, "Uh uh-oh, red flag. This is exactly what the Talmud teaches, and this is what the Antichrist is setting people up for because he's going to come and usher in a false golden age. Do you see what's going on here? And this is what a lot of these people believe, that we need to have a Christian nation, that it's good for the union of church and state to happen. And this is why, again, evangelical churches will be the way that the new world order will be formed. But moving on, let's go back to the theory of the seven mountain mandate. Followers claim that the biblical base for the movement is derived from Revelation 17, where in verse 9 reads, And here is the mind which hath wisdom, the seven heads are seven mountains. The seven areas which the movement believe the the seven areas which the movement believe control society in which they seek to control the our family, religion, education, media, entertainment, business, and government. They believe that their mission to take over the world is justified by Isaiah 2, which says, let's read Isaiah 2 really quick. Oh, it doesn't say it. Anyway, now, oh, it says here, now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains. Followers believe that by fulfilling the seven mountain mandate, they can bring about the end times. Of course, this is, this is literally what the Talmud teaches the Jews about their false Messiah. So, This is taken, ironically, from Revelation 17, where it talks about the seven mountains. But the woman, notice how they don't focus on the woman who sits on seven hills. That's Rome. The seven mountain mandate? It should be obvious who is mandating this mandate. It's the Catholic Church. Because why? As you saw, this is a way to get Christian evangelicals, Protestants, Pentecostals, whatever, to bring about a nationalization of church and state, which is exactly what the beast wants. So, of course, it's the seven mountain mandate. It has nothing to do with scripture, but rather the source, which is Rome. So, who sits on seven mountains? Again, they twist the Bible and they don't understand the end times. And so, in doing so, they are deceived into this idea that we can do something to bring about the return of Christ. I mean, that's just... If you believe in the sovereignty of God, which is one of the ways that it's revealed is through prophecy, then there is no room for you or I or anybody to do anything to force God's hand to do something. God has ordained the times for things to happen, and they will happen in their times. It's not for us to know everything, but we've been given a lot of things to understand where we are in history. And again, that's why historical understanding of prophecy is so important. These people who are post-millennialists and Christian nationalists, they tend to view Bible prophecy as preterist. What does that mean? That means that everything happened in the past with the Jews, and we don't really, you know, all those prophecies were just for the Jews. They don't really concern us. We have to be 
this is the church age. We got to bring the gospel and nationalize everybody so that Christ will return. Do you see the problem? If you are blind to history and you're blind to the 1260 years that the papacy ruled with an iron fist and sold indulgences and killed millions of people and had the crusades and the inquisitions and you're blind to that and you just brush that aside and you're blind to the fact that the Pope is meeting with all the Protestants and unifying church and state. You're blind to the fact that the Pope is behind every political conflict and meeting with everybody and pushing for a one world religion. You're just blind to all that and you know, it's a good thing. You are heading right towards the Antichrist. The Antichrist power, really, because there was no individual Antichrist. But of course, the Pope will probably be the representative or maybe a false Christ. Who knows? But look, <laughs> okay, let's let's take a little break here. But this is just the surface, okay? Remember the last episode with the image of the beast and how we have the fusion of religion with, with culture? With politics, how many politicians are involved with religion, how it's ubiquitous in politics. Most of the Supreme Court is Catholic. But in either way, either case, religion and politics and culture are combining. And now you see that even Protestants, religion within the United States, is combining with the Catholic Church. Remember the secret societies and the French Revolution and how all that started this underground governmental system that controls all things, on the surface, it looks like they're separate. Billy Graham was a Freemason. Now, I'm sure that God used his work to touch a lot of genuine elect believers and convert them. But nonetheless, Billy Graham was a Freemason. And you look at Joel Olstein and all these people, when it comes to speaking the truth and they're grilled on it, like Wallace grilled him, they deny it. They, they just slither around and, oh my gosh, they bring it back to something so cozy. They're, they are master manipulators, man. And of course, don't forget the book we talked about last time, The Emerging Order, God in the Age of Scarcity by Jeremy Rifkin, where he predicts that evangelical churches would be the way that the new world order would be created. So this is nothing new. And it's obvious if you have eyes to see. A return to a church-state union, a power that is basically controlling everything, the seven mountain mandate where you control education, politics, you know, whatever the other five mountains are, I don't forget, but everything basically, that's on the horizon. These people are fanatics and they have the power to do it. And they will do it because the Bible says they will do it because the plan of God needs to be fulfilled and the kings of the earth will give their power to the beast for a short while and they will fight against Christ, they'll lose and they'll be judged. So, I want to talk about the new perspective on Paul. Now, this is something that a lot of people have not heard of. However, it's important to know about it because it's an influential tactic, and it's going to help contrast when we talk about the charismatic movement afterwards. So, where do we find out about the uh, the new perspective? Let's read a Wikipedia article on it. Okay, so this is on Wikipedia. And just to give you an idea of what it actually is, there's a lot here to read, but the new perspective on Paul is a movement within the field of biblical studies concerning, concerned with the understanding of the writings of the Apostle Paul. The new perspective, in quotes, was started with liberal scholar E.P. Sanders in 1977 with his work Paul and the Palestinian Judaism. The old Protestant perspective claims that Paul advocates justification through, the, through faith in Jesus Christ over justification through works of the law which is true. That's what Paul claims when he's talking through his various letters. 
After the Reformation, this perspective was known as sola fide. This was traditionally understood as Paul arguing that Christians' good works would not factor into their salvation. Only their faith would count. In this perspective, first century Second Temple Judaism is dismissed as sterile and legalistic. So far, so good. However, here's the big asterisk, right? According to Sanders, Paul's letters do not address general good works, but instead question observances such as circumcision, dietary laws, and Sabbath laws, which were the boundary markers that set the Jews apart from other ethnic groups. According to Sanders, first century Palestinian Judaism was not a legalistic community, nor was it oriented to salvation by works. As God's chosen people, they were under, the, under his covenant. Contrary to Protestant belief, following the law was not a way of entering the covenant, but of staying within it. Okay, we're going to keep going, but I'm just going to do a really quick asterisk here. This is a very subversive teaching. It sounds good. It sounds like it makes sense. But we're going to unpack it very carefully so you understand what is being done here that ultimately will serve the beast in people's thinking of of how salvation is achieved. This is all about subtly, again, what is the goal? Uniting church and state. Bringing the Protestants back into the mother church, and you have to warm things up slowly. So we're going to keep reading on this, but this is a very subversive teaching. We will unpack it. Development. Since the Protestant Reformation, studies of Paul's writings have been heavily influenced by reformers' views that are said to ascribe the negative attributes that they associated with 16th century Catholicism to the Second Temple Judaism. Of course, they're the same thing. It's a works-based religion. These historic Protestant views on Paul's writings are called the old perspective. Oh gosh, we don't want that old perspective. Do you see what's going on? By adherence of the new perspective on Paul, the new perspective is an attempt to reanalyze Paul's letters and interpret them based on an understanding of first century Judaism taken on its own terms, whatever that's supposed to mean. Main ideas. It is often noted that the singular title, The New Perspective, gives an unjustified impression of unity. It is a field of study in which many scholars who actively are pursuing research and continuously revising their own theories in light of new evidence and who do not necessarily agree with each other on any given issue. So by and large, this whole perspective is all over the place. I'll just give you that caveat. It has been suggested by many that the plural title of New Perspectives may therefore be more accurate. In 2003, N.T. Wright, distancing himself from both Sanders and Dunn, commented that there are probably almost as many New Perspective positions as there are writers espousing it, and I disagree with most of them. So nobody knows what they're talking about, basically. There are certain trends and commonalities within the movement, but what is held In common is the belief that the historic Lutheran and Reformed perspectives of Paul the Apostle and Judaism are fundamentally incorrect. The following are some of the issues being widely discussed. Works of the Law Paul's letters contain a substantial amount of criticism regarding the works of the law. The radical difference in these two interpretations of what Paul meant by works of the law is the most consistent distinguishing feature between the two perspectives, meaning the old perspective and the new perspective. The the historic Protestant perspectives interpret this phrase as referring to human effort to do good works in order to meet God's standards. Works righteousness versus faith and grace. Of course, that's what it is talking about. In this view, Paul's arguing against the idea that humans can merit salvation from God 
by their good works alone. Note that the new perspective agrees that we cannot merit salvation. The issue is, what is Paul ex- addressing exactly? Now, this <laughs> this is, again, this part is very subversive, and you'll understand why in just a second. Note that the new perspective agrees that we cannot merit salvation, so of course they're not going to say it outright. They're not going to say outright, like, oh, you know what, salvation is different now. It's works-based. Of course not. That's You can't put a frog... You know, in hot and boiling water, it's going to jump out. You got to, no, 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 that's not what it is. The issue is what Paul is actually addressing. What is he actually talking about? Because if he's talking about something different than what you think he's talking about, then, you know, Judaism and Catholicism, you know, it's 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 all one same thing. They weren't really so much about works. They were about faith. And see, now because they're the same, now what does that mean? What does that mean for you if if Judaism isn't a workspace religion that Paul was condemning, but rather a little closer to Christianity. What does that mean? We'll find out. And we'll find out why the beast is using this. Moving on. The new perspective view is that Paul's writings discuss the comparative merits of following ancient Israelite or ancient Greek customs. Paul is interpreted as being critical of a common Jewish view that following traditional Israelite customs make a person better off before God, pointing out that Abraham was righteous before the Torah was given. Human effort and good works. Due to their interpretation of the phrase works of the law, theologians of historic Protestant perspective see Paul's rhetoric as being against human effort to earn righteousness, which is true. It is against human effort. We can do nothing to be saved. It's God's work and grace. This is often cited by Protestant and Reformed theologians as central feature of the Christian religion, which it is. And the concepts of grace alone and faith alone are of great importance within the creeds of these denominations. New perspective interpretations of Paul tend to result in Paul having nothing negative to say about the idea of human effort or good works. There it is. Do you see what's going on? Do you see how they slide that in? Nothing negative about good works. And then pretty soon you're going to pilgrimages and relics and praying to Mary and all kinds of other things. And saying many positive things about both. New perspective scholars point to the many statements in Paul's writings that specify the criteria of final judgment as being by the works of the individual. Okay, well, there's a little more nuance there, but moving on. Final judgment according to works was quite clear for Paul, as indeed for Jesus. Paul, in in company with mainstream Second Temple Judaism, affirms that God's final judgment will be in accordance with the entirety of the life led, in accordance, in other words, with works. This is what N.T. Wright said. So the final judgment is according to works? Let's take a quick break for that. Yes, there's a Bema judgment where we will be given rewards for our various things that God did through us. That's just another way for God to share his blessings with us. And of course, we will probably be reminded or pointed out of the things that we failed. But that's not, you know, you're not, God has ordained, this is where you get lost with this stuff. And again, it's all this stuff is going to make sense because it's, We're slowly piecing it together. All these people, first and foremost, believe in free will and free will, our meaning in theology, where we have to do things to basically respond to God. And, and, and this is a whole can of worms, man, but we'll get, we'll get to how all this stuff relates. But look, God is sovereign. He's ordained things in your life, both good and bad. And at the Bema judgment, you are going to get rewards and you also probably get some teachings and lessons from the things that he's ordained for you to fail at. That's on purpose so you can be conformed to the image of Christ. Everything has a purpose. You don't have to earn 
You have to, you don't have to think, gosh, I'm going to be rewarded or I'm going to be punished. I better work, 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 work. That's not how this works. And the final judgment is not the Bema judgment. The Bema judgment is for believers. The final judgment, that's according to whether you believed in Christ or not. It's not according to your works. It's according to whether you had faith in Christ. Now, faith itself can only be provided to you by God's grace. You're not capable of having faith in God on your own. We have thousands of years of sin ingrained into our genetics and the momentum of the culture that we live in, the matrix that we are born into, the satanic matrix. Do you think you have any chance to come to the gospel on your own? Absolutely not. And this is where Armenians who believe in free will and are obsessed with free will as a measure of you know, salvation really stumble because salvation is a gift of God. It, it is by grace you are saved and this is a gift, not of your own doing. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. We have to memorize that verse because salvation is a gift from God. The fact that you have come to God and you know God and you have a relationship with God has nothing on your effort, not even believing. The fact that you believe is a gift from God. God opened your eyes so that you could believe, just like he opened Paul's eyes and he opened everybody else's eyes. It is his work, and therefore he gets the glory. If we do any part of that work, then God doesn't get the glory that he deserves. Because if it was you that took a leap to believe, imagine how many people, gosh, this is such a can of worms, I'm, I'm going to avoid the temptation to unpack it because I have a whole series on salvation. But look, there are billions of people that are going to be destroyed in hell. If you, the 1%, the 0.01% in human history that made that first step and believed in God, man, there's something special about you. See how this works? Grace is not just forgiving of sins. Grace is an active, irresistible force that comes into your life, regenerates your heart, and gives you the ability to believe as well as sustains you. Grace is a living thing. It's not this you know, coupon that you take advantage of. But if you believe that works play a part in your system, then it's no longer by grace. And the Bible teaches extensively, especially Paul. Paul is the one that teaches probably the most on that in the New Testament. Anyway, moving on. This is what Wright thought about the final judgment. It's not about works. It's about grace. Wright, however, does not hold the view that good works contribute to one's salvation. Of course. Everybody's so confused in these perspectives. They hold such contrary perspectives. But rather, the final judgment is something Christians can look forward to as a future vindication of God's present declaration of their righteousness. In other words, one's works are a product of one's salvation, and future judgment will reflect that. Okay, so now we're talking more correct theology, but as you can see, it'll oscillate. Others tend to place a higher value on the importance of good works than the historic Protestant perspectives do, taking the view that they casually contribute to the salvation of the individual. So you see, this is what happens, and it is drifting and drifting and drifting. Of course, what's it drifting towards? The Catholic Church, because the Catholic Church believes this. Advocates of the historic Protestant perspectives often see this as being salvation by works, and as a bad thing, contradicting fundamental tenets of Christianity. New perspective scholars often respond that their views are not so different, of course. From the perspective of Luther and Calvin, God graciously empowers the individual to the faith which leads to salvation and also to good works. While in the new perspective, God graciously empowers individuals to the faith demonstrated in good works, which leads to salvation. Look, 
all these things you get this stuff like i said is very heady it's very easy to get lost because it's it's just snake talk see also synergism in theosis in eastern orthodox church okay so synergism let's talk really quick before we <laughs> read more of this stuff synergism and monergism these are two theological terms synergism is the idea that we're both doing something. God and man is doing something. And this is what the Catholic Church believes. This is what the Eastern Orthodox Church believes. All these institutionalized religions, they rely on the lie of free will. Now, we have a will, but we don't have a libertarian free will, which is what the Garden of Eden, this is as old as time, folks. The snake sold libertarian free will to Eve, that you do not need God. You can make your own choices. You can decide what's good and evil. It's up to you, and that lie is alive, alive and well, especially after the French Revolution, because the French Revolution teaches you that you have libertarian free will, that you can make choices without any influence. Only God, who is outside the momentum of time and space, has libertarian free will. So, of course, yeah, you can be like God, but you're not like God. You don't have libertarian free will. God's will is playing out in our lives. And sure, we experience things by choices, by day-to-day, by moment-to-moment, but you are not choosing free of influence. And I can prove that to you scientifically. I'm not going to do it today. It's in my series on once saved, always saved, which is a term that's used for eternal security. Eternal security is the more theological term. But once God has saved you truly and con- and converted your heart, you are saved for good because he sustains you. Grace is a living thing. If you believe that it's up to you to have faith in God, then you also believe you can lose your salvation. And what do you? What does that mean? Well, first, first and foremost, God can't keep you saved. And second, it means you have to work to maintain your salvation. Do you see how this works? How on the surface, people like the Orthodox Church and the Greek, um, the Catholic Church say, "Well, no, no." Well, Catholics pretty much admit that, you know, they're a workspace religion. But again, they'll say stuff like, "Yeah, we're justified by grace, of course," but how it plays out is you have to work to maintain your salvation. And of course, that means going to church, you know, following the feast days, doing your penance. You know, it's a rat race. It's a religion. As long as you believe that you have to work to maintain your salvation and that you can lose your salvation, which you have to believe if you believe in free will as a factor in salvation, then you are drifting into a works-based religion. You're drifting away from the gospel. And this is what this whole new perspective is about. This stuff is a little heady. It's a little, you know, uh, you know, theologically complex. And I have a lot of articles I'm going to share on this. I, I'm probably just going to read this one. I was going to talk a few through. I'm probably just going to read this one. And once we finish, I mean, there's still a few uh, to, to read through, actually. But, you know, honestly... Here, here's the deal with this stuff. I'm going to cite these articles and you can look through them. And the reality is this. I mean, the new perspective on Paul is a move towards ecumenism. It's a move towards ecumenism. It is designed to get people more and more comfortable with, you know, this idea of working for maintaining your faith. Now, it's they're not going to outright say, Salvation by works. Obviously not. Satan is never going to do that. Satan is never going to do that. He's going to make you feel that, oh, it's by grace, but then, you know, you got to work to maintain your grace. 
He's going to always go through the back door. He's always going to go through comfort and through getting you comfortable with these things. So all these people like N.T. Wright, I mean, uh, Steve Chalk, who's another figure in this, you can look him up. Again, I'll post resources for all these things. All these people are very deluded. And you can see through the quotes and things I've, I've outlined in these various sources, they're very deluded and they don't, they have contrary perspectives. They don't really know what they believe. It's a very confounding thing to look into the new perspective on Paul. It's a very confounding thing. But here's the main ideas about it. They thought that the Jews were basically guiltless. They thought that the Jews thought that they were guiltless before God as well because they were in the covenant. Right? They thought that justification is God declaring who is part of his people, not imputed righteousness. So again, these things are, it's, if you read through stuff on your perspective, it's very confusing because nobody has articulated their beliefs very well. And of course, nobody wants to say, oh my gosh, it's a works-based perspective. They don't want to be demonized, but they'll, you know, they're trying to, to move it in that direction. And of course, ultimately what this is about, it's about getting people comfortable with the idea of synergism instead of monergism where God does the work. It's about you doing some work too, even if it's, Maintaining your faith, you got to work to maintain your faith. Well, that's work, dude. You're not letting the Holy Spirit work to maintain your faith and trusting that God will preserve his people. That's the gospel. So to be saved, you have to be part of his people, meaning what? You got to be part of the church. That's what salvation is. Now, of course, they don't have a clear identi- identification of how people are saved if. Okay, so if they're part of, if the definition of salvation is to be part of the church, because remember, according to new perspective people, justification is God declaring who is part of his people, not imputed righteousness from Christ. We are justified because Christ shed his blood. He was righteous. He didn't deserve it. We deserved it, but he is passing that bank account onto us and covering our sins. That is the traditional orthodox view of justification. According to new perspective people, justification is God declaring who is part of his people, which is very confusing. And again, it leads to ecumenism. Salvation is not what God does in your life through grace, but the opportunity he provides for you to take by joining the church. And you still have to take it because of free will. Do you see Do you see how subversive this is? I hope you do. And that's why, again, I had some other articles I wanted to read, but I'm, I'm just not going to because this stuff is, the more you read it, the more it just like swims in your head and it's very confusing. But the point is this, they're trying to reinterpret how Paul saw works of the law and say, look, the Jews actually, you know, they, they're not so different than the Christians. They're not so different. They're not really about works, works, works. They're, you know, works are actually good. They were under the covenant, and God was declaring them righteous because of the covenant. This idea is Roman Catholic, and it's Armenian, and it pushes people to getting comfortable with ecumenism, with this idea that you need to work to maintain your salvation. It's an it's a ecumenical movement in the Protestant evangelical church, churches, really, because there's more of them. But I, got, I have a few rebuttals for you with this. And again, this is this is from Scripture now that you are solid in your faith and you can meet every battle when you need to. 
First and foremost, God was very liberal with the death penalty in the Old Testament. Okay, Jews did not think that they were guiltless just because they were in the covenant. David knew that there was no forgiveness for the type of sin that he had with Bathsheba, and he, that's why some of his psalms were just crying out to God for forgiveness. Okay, people knew the God of the Old Testament before the atonement on the cross was very quick to pass judgment. Now, he was also very merciful. There's so many pictures of God's mercy, but remember, there was no cross yet. So God had to be just. And there were many times when people were killed for basically breaking the law. So Jews most certainly did not think that they were guiltless before God just because they were in the covenant. Because first and foremost, God gave them a bilateral covenant. Grace, which is the covenant we have through Jesus, the new covenant, is a unilateral covenant, meaning God is doing the work. You don't have to do anything. A bilateral covenant is a covenant where you have to do something to maintain the covenant. I do my part, you do your part. And you can see that throughout the Bible, but look uh, in Joshua chapter 23, verse 15 through 16. Let's read that as, as one example. But just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things God is the source of good and evil. He's the just one that all things proceed forth from until he has destroyed you from off of this good land that the Lord God has given you. If you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and to go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given you. And certainly they did. Why? Because it was a conditional covenant. I mean, this is just one of the passages, but there's so many places with Moses, with Joshua, with the prophets. God brought a lot of evil on Israel. Because why? Because they conducted themselves evilly. They bowed down to false gods. They sacrificed their children. I mean, they were doing abominable things. So yeah, God brought some evil on them in justice and judgment because the covenant was bilateral. So anybody who says and suggests that the Jews felt the same way about justification or very similarly that we Christians feel through Christ, that is severely misinformed. The Jews did not feel the same way about justification. In fact, if you read throughout the Old Testament when the angel of the Lord appeared to people, many times they said, now we're going to die because God has appeared to us. And of course, God did not kill them in mercy, but that was the precedent if you saw God, you're going to die. You're not allowed to. He's a holy being. You're a sinful creature. You're going to die. And, you know, that that was the attitude. So you can't say the Jews felt the same way. The, the Second Temple Jews felt the same way about justification. That is an outlet, a very clever and subversive outlet to getting you more comfortable with the ideas of synergism, of Arminianism, of works being part of faith, which of course we do works because we have been regenerated. It's it's something we want to do. But the way this plays out is works are part of maintaining your faith. And that's how they get you into a works-based religion. But a couple of key verses, again, if you ever run into this stuff about imputation, atonement, salvation, Romans 5 from Paul, verses 12 through 17, death in Adam, life in Christ. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. 
Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was the type for the one to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. You are justified because of the free gift of grace. God shed his blood for you and I so that we could have grace. Verse 17, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness, that's your free gift. It's imputed, meaning it's transferred to you. Reign in the life through the one man, Jesus Christ. 1 John 2, verse 2, he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Romans 3, verse 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Yeah, there's many times when God was merciful throughout the Old Testament to the point where people would be like, wait a minute, does God even care about justice? He's being so merciful to people. Like, is God just? Immediately, perfectly just. And so the crucifixion showed that God is very serious about sin, so much so that he crucified his only son on our behalf and punished him. So God was very serious about sin, and the cross was necessary to prove that. Hebrews 2, verse 17, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every aspect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation again and again. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. For our sake he made him sin to be to him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Propitiated, imputed righteousness. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, famous verse, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. There's nothing that you have done to be saved. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. If it was you that chose to have faith when billions of other people didn't, didn't come to that awareness, man, there was some genetic thing about you or some clever thing about your education that made you have faith, some special thing about your character. How could you have faith in such a world of darkness? You must be a true light in this world. Do you see how even attributing faith to ourselves is boasting? It really is. We have to boast in the Lord because the Lord is the one who gives us the ability to choose him and to have faith. Romans 4, three verse, uh, chapter 4, verses 3 through 9. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as a due. God doesn't owe us anything. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts righteousness apart from the works, blessed are those who lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Faith 
counts you as righteous. Why? Because Christ's righteousness is imputed to you. Now, it's imputed retroactively to people like Abraham. The Old Testament is the shadow of the cross, and it's imputed proactively to the people who weren't born yet when the cross happened. The cross is like the the central point in time that all of time just ripples out. And it's a profound thing to think about, but that's really what's happening. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are, are you being served. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So what's the gospel? The gospel is imputed righteousness by the death of Christ on your behalf and trusting in that. Now look, there can be nothing that you can do to earn your salvation. It's a gift. There's nothing you can do, therefore, to lose your salvation because God doesn't do things that he can be thwarted in. If he wants to save somebody, he's going to save somebody. There's nothing also that you can do to maintain your salvation. Okay, the Holy Spirit is sanctifying you. God is not caused, called God of salvation. He did not pick the name Yeshua, which means God of salvation or salvation. He didn't pick that willy-nilly. He didn't pick it because he offers salvation as an opportunity that you need to take advantage of through your free will because then that means you can lose your salvation and he can't really save the people he wants to save. God is called, is called God of salvation because he completes salvation. He completed the atonement. It's done. It is finished. And he completes it in our lives through the grace of the Holy Spirit, sanctifying us. First, we're born again, but then we are kept in the faith by his persevering power. And he, he maintains us. Synergism, which is the belief that we have free will and we're activating salvation through our free will to choose God, robs God from glory. I have a whole series on this. This is such a can of worms. But again, it's important to understand these distinctions because this stuff like the new perspective on Paul and even like Hebrew roots, I didn't even talk about this stuff, but Hebrew roots, it's all going to the works side of things. Okay, there's no room for your work in salvation. Otherwise, the gospel is not the gospel. And all these things just show, again, that the devil uses both sides. We're going to talk about the charismatic movement as the final part of this episode. And I want I wanted to show you both sides. I wanted to show you the side of the legalism, where they get you with the works and make you think you need to work to maintain your salvation. Or again, the Hebrews movement, which I didn't really even prepare for this episode, but it came to my mind, Hebrew Roots Movement, that we need to go back to observing the law of Moses, otherwise we can't be saved. There's Christians who are actually teaching this. I mean, quote-unquote Christians that are teaching this on YouTube. But there is no such thing. That's not the gospel. But yet, this is how people get snared, either to the right or to the left. Ultra-conservative, ultra-liberal. That's how the devil gets you. Don't go to the right or to the left. Don't go to the hyper-grace, everyone is saved, you know, progressive Christianity. Don't go to the left of new perspective on, oh, well, you know, we've got to work to maintain our salvation, or, you know, maybe works are actually a good thing. This is how it gets you. And again, all this stuff, the reason I picked this specific thing is because it's moving towards a one-world religion under the beast. 
And you can tell if you have eyes to see, then you see it. But look, these people, they reject propitiation. So they don't really have a good answer as to how you're reconciled to God because of sin. If God is declaring who is, is salvation or justification is God declaring who is part of the church, how are people actually reconciled? What's the mechanism? And there's no, there's no good answer that any of these people provide. If they reject propitiation, then how, how are you reconciled to God? Like, answer that question. I can answer it as a Christian. Christ died for my place. I get his righteousness that I don't deserve through grace. And God gives me the ability to believe in that. That's how I'm reconciled through the atonement on the cross. But if that's, but if justification, which is how we're reconciled to God, is God declaring who's part of his church, again, remember how they use these words and what they're doing with them. How are people actually reconciled for all their sin that you committed? How is that paid off? How is that wiped clean? God can declare that you're part of his church, but he's a just God. You still have to deal with the sin issue. You see how subversive all this stuff is? And again, that's why I decided just not to focus on too much of it today. But moving on, now that you're familiar with that, in all the pitfalls of the legalist side of things, let's talk about the charismatic movement. Okay, this is Wikipedia and charismatic movement. Let's take a look at that. The charismatic movement in Christianity is a movement within established or mainstream Christian denominations to adopt beliefs and practices of charismatic Christianity with an emphasis on baptism with the Holy Spirit and the use of spiritual gifts. It has affected most denominations in the U.S. and has spread widely across the world. Interesting. The movement is deemed to have begun in the 1960s in, Ang in Anglicanism and spread to other mainstream Protestant denominations, including Lutherans and Presbyterianism by 1962 and to Roman Catholicism by 1967. Isn't that something? The Roman Catholics are also charismatic. Methodists became involved in the charismatic movement in the 1970s. So we have something that just formed in the last 50 years or so, 60 years, and it's very interesting to say the least. Catholic charismatic renewal. Let's see what that's about. The Catholic charismatic renewal is a movement within the Catholic church that is part of the wider charismatic movement across the Christian churches. The renewal has been described as a current of grace. It began in 1967 when Catholics from Dugesny University attended a Protestant worship service and claimed to have been baptized in the Holy Spirit. It is heavily influenced by American Protestantism, especially evangelical Pentecostalism, with an emphasis on having a personal relationship with Jesus. Wait, these are Catholics? That's interesting. Deep emotional experiences expressing the gifts of the Holy Spirit. What an interesting phenomenon. Cardinal Leo Joseph Swinens, which I believe it is a Jesuit, described charismatic renewal as, quote, not a specific movement. The renewal is not a movement in the common sociological. Now pay attention to this language. This is what I love. The renewal is not a movement in the common sociological sense. It does not have founders. It is not hom homogenous, and it includes a, a great variety of realities. It is a current of grace, a renewing breath of the Spirit, for all members of the church, laity, religious priests, and bishops. It is a challenge for us all. One does not form part of the renewal. Rather, the renewal becomes a part of us, provided that we accept the grace it offers us. It? I thought God is the only one that can offer grace. 
Notice what, and again, this guy's a Jesuit. We'll learn more about him in a little bit, but it's not a common sociological movement. It's, it's not like something you've seen before. There's nobody who founded it. It's a grassroots taking fire and burning things up kind of movement. Very interesting, isn't it? Catholics who practice charismatic worship usually hold prayer meetings outside of Mass that feature prophecy, faith healing, and glossolalia, which is talking in tongues. In Ann Arbor, Michigan, a Catholic church describes charismatic worship as uplifted hands during songs and audible prayer in tongues. This is a Catholic situation happening, and very interesting. Let's read about Joseph Swinon's a little more. This is from a slide in a presentation, Vatican II and the Charismatic Movement. Cardinal Joseph Swinons, Templeton Prize recipient, 1976, he was also a Mason, <laughs> isn't that funny, being initiated on June 15, 1967. Chosen by the Pope John XXIII to be one of the chief architects of the Vatican II meetings, he served on all four of its major committees. Swinons stated, quote, Since I have had this charismatic experience, my allegiance to the Holy Father as the vicar of Christ in the world has been heightened and strengthened. My appreciation for Mary as the co-redemptress and mediatoress of my salvation has been assured. What, is, what do the people believe about Mary and who Mary really is in the occult world? My, my appreciation of the Mass as the sacrifice of Christ has now been heightened. Remember all these things we talked about? So wait a minute. Put this, now, let's do some math. Add this with what he just said in the Wikipedia article, like, oh, this is a current of grace, and it's characterized by people having a deep relationship with Jesus. But in reality, this guy, who is a Jesuit, who is very up in the ranks, says that this is really helping him heighten his allegiance to the Pope, to the sovereign. Remember the art of war, the general and the sovereign? It's helping him heighten his allegiance to the sovereign and to Mary as the co-redemptrix. And again, Helena Blavatsky and her book, The Secret Doctrine, identifies the celestial virgin with Lucifer. And of course, we know from the Fatima experiences and what the Fatima apparition told people that all those things were very antichrist. It's totally Lucifer masquerading as you know, an angel of light, an apparition of Mary. And ultimately, these things are false signs and wonders. But let's keep going. The Second Vatican Council and the Charismatic Renewal. On January 25th, 1959, only two months after his election as Pope, John XXIII surprised the world by announcing the council to give the church the possibility to contribute more efficaciously to the solution of the problems of the modern age. In other words ecumenism. We need to bring the churches together. The joyful echo brought about by its announcement, as well as the lively interest on the part of the non-Catholics and even non-Christians, proved in the most eloquent manner that the historical importance of the event has not escaped anyone. In other words, marveling after the beast. And all these initiatives that are happening, they're by design. Pope Paul the Sixth, speaking to the National Conference on the Catholic Charismatic Renewal on May 19, 1975, encouraged the attendees in their renewal efforts and especially to remain anchored in the church. Of course, 1975 marks the year of the renewal's coming of age in the Catholic Church. Pope Paul VI told the group of 10,000 Charismatics, nothing is more necessary to this more and more secularized world. There it is again, the dialectics between the left the atheists, and the Christian nationalists. 
They're the big bad boogeyman. Nothing's more necessary in this more secularized world than the witness of the spiritual renewal that we see the Holy Spirit evoking in the most diverse regions and milieu. How then could the spiritual renewal not be a chance for the church and for the world? Of course it's a chance. It's a great chance. And how in this case could one not take all the means to ensure that it remains so? Gosh, this is just the dragon speaking, if I've ever heard it. This is a chance for the church, and we're going to make sure that we're going to keep this chance. What's the chance? The chance is to unite people under a false gospel. They will either get you to the left or to the right. Either they're going to get you with all the saints and prayers and relics and, and mass and Eucharist and all these works that seduce the eyes that make you feel like you're doing good things and maintaining your salvation, or they're going to get you with the other side, the liberal side, the, oh, experiences. We have the Holy Spirit and experiences and we're speaking in tongues and prophecy and, oh my gosh, we're having these convulsions and we, we, we all have the same experience. We must be serving the same God. But in reality, you will find out as we go more and more through this that it's not the Holy Spirit that is producing these false signs and wonders. It's the counterfeit spirit of the beast. Vatican II said this about the charisms. It's not only through the sacraments and the church ministries that the Holy Spirit sanctifies and leads the people to God. Read that first sentence as a works-based religion. So the sacraments that you do, the physical things, is how the Holy Spirit sanctifies you. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches an internal journey of sanctification where the Holy Spirit changes your heart and changes your desires and changes your attitudes and makes you closer and closer to the image of Christ. Not doing physical things and going to pilgrimages, taking the Eucharist, doing your prayers, your rosaries to be sanctified. This is the first red flag. Moving on. He distributes special graces among the faithful of every rank. The manifestation of the Holy Spirit is given to everyone for profit. Of course, they quote scripture, and this is what the devil does. These charismatic gifts, whether they be the most outstanding or the more simple and widely diffused, are to be received with thanksgiving and consolidation, for they are exceedingly suitable and useful for the needs of the church. Of course, they're so useful, aren't they? And as you will see, we have some things to go through here, you will see just how useful they truly are. Concerning the Jesuits, Alberto declares, Catherine Kuhlman was one of Rome's greatest undercover agents, assigned to penetrate the Pentecostals and Protestants through the charismatic movement. We'll learn about Catherine in just a second. She was a master of hypnosis and had tremendous psychic powers. As a reward for her outstanding work, she was granted a private audience with the Pope. Of course, and that's why all these people are meeting with the Pope, because these are little rewards and allegiances that they're forging. As a result of her work, most now teach unity, but seldom preach separation and holiness, which is what Rome dreaded. This is from the Crusaders series, volume 13 by Jack Chick. All these things are cited and sourced, and you can check them for yourself. This is Catherine Coleman with the Pope on Facebook. There's a little picture. You can look her up. I mean, she's got this little picture with him, and oh my gosh, they're just Again, look look at what you're seeing here. This is something you got to pay attention to. Pope wears a white hat. What's Catherine wearing? Black. Every time you meet with the Pope, you have to be the black. You have to be the dark that points to the light. Always the Pope is wearing white. 
and always the people that meet with him, they're wearing black. Why? Because they have to point to the beast, the representative of the beast, the dark to the light. You are the dark, the agent that moves people back to the sovereign. Art of war, man. It's just, you know, once you learn these things, look, there's Catherine Coleman. She's just looking possessed as usual. Catherine Johanna Coleman, May 9th, 1907 to 1976, was a 20th century American faith healer. She believed in miracles and deliverances by the power of the Holy Spirit and was part of the Pentecostal arm of the Protestant church. In 1972, she was known for her for her healing crusades. In fact, Time Magazine called her a veritable one-woman shrine of lords. And she was granted an honorary doctoral by Oral Roberts University. In 1973, Benny Hinn attended one of her healing crusades, which was a catalyst for his ministry. So now... Put one and one together really quick. Catherine Coleman was a Jesuit insider. Benny Hinn, who's a prosperity teacher and has led millions astray, got inspired by Catherine Coleman. So mother of harlots is pretty appropriate, I would say. Moving on. It is thanks to Coleman that the practice of being slain in the spirit, which is totally bogus, is said to have been made more popular in evangelical circles. Mother of harlots... This is another picture. This is David Duplessis with Pope Paul IV and all the evangelicals of uh, South Africa, I believe. So South Africa has a lot of this kind of stuff going on in there. And this is, again, the Pope meeting with all these leaders in South Africa. What's that about? You know, this is just so strange. Statement from Richard, Father Richard Rohr, OFM, after meeting Pope Francis another Protestant figure, Albuquerque, July 1st, last year, 2022. I am full of joy, ecstatic even, reflecting on my meeting with Pope Francis. Our conversation focused on how the discovery, rediscovery of the contemplative mind can serve the renewal of Christianity and healing of our world. Again, what does this mean? Does this mean the gospel or does it mean something else? Sitting across from each other, I shared with him about what God has done in my life. From my beginning as a charismatic, learning the healing power of heart-based devotional prayer, to confronting the social justice issues of our time through my travels throughout the world, to founding an organization for the teaching of action and contemplation. What is this? Contemplation is like an Eastern mysticism term. I consider putting those two back together to be historic and singular opportunity we have in this moment. Pope Francis listened to what I shared and seemed genuinely eager to encourage our work. Of course, he was so eager. I brought him a copy of Universal Christ. I wonder what's in that book. My end-of-life book, but he said he already read it. Would you look at that? Oh my gosh, what chums. He shared three times very directly, quote, I want you to keep doing what you're doing. Keep teaching what you're teaching. For this Catholic boy from Kansas, that is a powerful, that is a wonderful, hard to believe affirmation coming from the Pope himself for the whole Christian contemplative movement, whatever that is. But of course, he's excited that this, probably Catholic charismatic, I think, just keep teaching what you're teaching. Yeah, it's doing great for the church. You see what's going on here? It's doing great because people are uniting around experiences rather than doctrine. So this is how the devil gets you. God is very clear and specific when it comes to doctrine. And of course, you can't around you can't unite lies with truth. 
But if we can unite around things that we have in common, like spiritual experiences, do you realize that every religion in history for the last thousands of years has had mystical spiritual experiences? Spiritual experiences are not the thing to unite around because you don't know what spirit is guiding you. How do you know? How do you really know? You test it with the word of God. And when you do, you find out that most of the stuff is bogus. But if you don't have discernment, then, well, it is what it is. Then you unite into a one-world religion. Sir Knight Norman Vincent Peale, this is Trump's, one of Trump's uh, spiritual advisors or, you know, people he looked up to. When discussing influential Protestant clergy of the last half of the 20th century, two names are likely to dominate the conversation. Billy Graham, who was a Freemason, and Norman Vincent Peale, also. The Reverend Graham has, of course, been the leading evangelist. Peale is a more complex figure, of course. An active minister for six decades, he also became known as a writer of self-help books, working to consciously integrate psychological insights with religious beliefs. Interesting, huh? A Mason for 67 years. Did you know that? He served rather proudly as both a grand chaplain and a grand prelate in his 95-year lifespan. Grand chaplain and grand prelate. Now, this guy is behind a lot of the personal growth movement, which is another works-based religion and is fusing with the new age. Again, all this stuff, it's, it's really, truly profound. If you remember the art of war, what is the responsibility of the sovereign? The controlling of the divine threads, as they called it. The weaving of the threads. There are so many threads being woven into a tapestry right now that it's it's just mind-boggling boggling how they're doing it. But it truly is because God has allowed them to do it and has decreed them to do it. But the New Age and the personal growth movement are moving into this occultic, light world, save-yourself religion. Meanwhile, you have the Catholic Church, which is infiltrating culture. It's always been in culture, but it's really putting forward these propaganda pieces like the Passion of the Christ, the the chosen, all these fleshly things that the hallow app that gets you to wander after the beast and its pilgrimages and its religion and its works and its beautiful buildings and all these things that are fleshly and of the eyes. And then you have the Protestants moving into the Catholic Church. Oh, you know what? We, the protest is over. You have religion and politics blurring in the United States. You have on one side the works-based religions that are seeing more in common with Catholicism. And you see like Mormons, right? And you see the new perspective on Paul. All these things are warming people up to a workspace reality where you're basically a slave. And then you have on the other side, the charismatic movement where it just avoids that stuff altogether. And it goes by way of these spiritual experiences. And oh my gosh, I felt something. It must be the Holy Spirit. Oh my gosh, you're Catholic. You know what? Forget these boundaries. We have the same God. We feel the same thing. So it must be the truth. And you see all these threads are being woven simultaneously. It's it's truly profound. And if you can see it again from the big picture, what can I say? It's a crazy time to be alive. But this is from Freedom in the Word. Match the music to the people you want to reach. Let's see what this is about. This is a little bit hard to read, but the style of music you choose to use in your services will be one of the most cri- critical and controversial decisions you make in the life of your church. It may be the most influential factor in determining whom your church reaches 
for Christ and whether or not your church grows. Really, the style of music. You must match your music to the kind of people God wants your church to reach. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you guess who made this quote, but moving on. The music you use positions your church in your community. It defines who you are. Once you have decided on the style of music you're going to use in your worship, you have set the direction of your church in far more ways than you realize. Really? I mean, this is just profound. It will determine the kind of people you attract, the kind of people you keep, and the kind of people you lose. This is by Rick Warren. This is written by him, and it's about basically how to sell your church. And this is not just Rick Warren. This is just one of many. But if you know anything about the art of war and how Sun Tzu, you know, supposedly basically had the little drums and he was obedience training with, with music. I mean, look, <laughs> these things are very old. Look at the Bible and Nebuchadnezzar when they were making people obey with, you know, bow down to the statue according to the music, right? So music has a powerful role. This has been around since the dawn of time. I mean, what? Satan is the, the principality of the, the prince of the air, right? Well, what's in our airwaves? Look at the music. Look at the music industry. Look at Hollywood. All that stuff is guided by the devil. And ultimately, music is powerful. Music was created by God. But music has been twisted by the enemy, especially nowadays. We looked last time when most of the, the top 25 worship songs or the top, I don't remember what the exact thing was, but all the top worship songs are written by like a handful of churches. Bethel, Hillsong, all these apostate churches that believe in grave soaking and grave sucking. I mean, just disgusting theology. I mean, just crazy. We're not talking like little blips of, you know, theology. We're talking serious problems. Man-centered teaching, apostate teaching, things that you need to mark and avoid, you know, with a 10-foot pole. So, Ultimately, all these things, what do they do? They use music. Oh, you got you to gotta pick the right music so you can bring... So what does that mean? Is the people who are coming in because of the music, are they coming in to be saved because they're desperate for a savior? They need a solution and they're at the end of their rope? Or are they coming in because they want to feel good and they want an experience? And then they have that experience and they say, oh, it's the Holy Spirit. You see what's happening? This is the kind of stuff happening across the country countless and countless places. And then because we are in the culture that prefers emotion over logic, that values your standards of judgment over objective outside standards, just like the, just like Satan told Eve, you can determine what's good and evil. We're in that kind of relativistic culture. So in that kind of culture, of course, you're going to realize, you're going to say, oh yeah, that was the Holy Spirit. Yeah, I'm not going to have any discernment about it. I felt it, so it was it was true. And somebody else is going to say, oh, I felt that too. So, oh my gosh, like, you know what? It doesn't matter you're Catholic and I'm, you know, Mormon or Protestant or whatever. We have we actually believe in the same God. Yes, we do. Let's unite. Well, who's going to be in the charge of our new religion? Well, you know, the Pope seems like a nice guy. Let's let's have him do it. This is what's happening, man. I mean, it's just it's just crazy. Pope John Paul and the charismatic renewal. While meeting with some 500,000 representatives of various movements in the Catholic Church on the eve of Pentecost, 1998, John Paul boldly proclaimed, Open yourselves docilely to the gifts of the Spirit. Accept gratefully and obediently the charisms which the Spirit never ceases to bestow on us. 
There he is with his Dagon hat and Christ emaciated on a bent cross, which if you know anything about that, then you know who this person really believes in. But look, I mean, open yourselves docilely to the spirit. What spirit is he talking about? What spirit are they actually believing in? It's not the spirit of God. It's a counterfeit spirit. Look at this picture. Charismatic priest. And again, I'll put all these sources in my description. So if you're listening, then you can look this up for yourself. This is a 1996 meeting in October. Charismatic priests from many different movements met at the Vatican in October. Look at this hall, Pope Paul VI, I believe, audience hall, that looks like a snake. You can't see it in this picture because it's from an angle, but you know, we, we looked at this plenty. It's designed to be like a snake. And at the mouth of the snake, what do you have? You have the throne of the Pope. You have this Antichrist coming out of some explosion of destruction, which they say, oh, that's Jesus. No, it's not. Does that look like Jesus to you? Look it up. I think Fazzini is the uh, sculptor of it or whatever, but I mean, it looks evil. And it's at the mouth of the snake and all these people are uniting and listening to what the snake has to tell. I mean, it's, this is crazy. And people just are focused on Israel all the time. Catholic charismatic movement, Pope John Paul II, in his 99 address to Pontifical Council of for the Laity, quote, we have experienced the grace of a new Pentecost. A new Pentecost, really? There are many signs of hope which have flourished for the mission of the church. Church here doesn't mean the actual church of Christ, but the church is in the counterfeit church that Satan created through the Catholic church, among which are the discovery and the appraisal of charisms, the renewal zeal, the renewed zeal for evangelization and the advancement of lay people. Sounds so good, doesn't it? But it's really just evil. May 7th, 2006, by Zenit. More than 10,000 members of communities of the Catholic Charismatic Renewal will observe the Vigil of Pentecost with Benedict the 16th. The unknown God, the Holy Spirit considered until a few years ago as the unknown God, is the one who, with his grace, tirelessly changes the lives of thousands of people in all corners of the world, who with renewed joy through the experience of baptism in the Spirit begin a new life lived precisely in the Holy Spirit. Okay. Let's read some more. He is the one we wish to honor and glorify publicly. Responding to the appeal that both John Paul II, as well as Benedict XVI, made to CCR and the whole church to spread the culture of Pentecost and the action of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church and in each of the faithful. The director added, This celebration, which will include moments of prayer, listening, witness, and invocation of the Spirit, We'll end with a celebration of prayer, a music concert. <laughs> this is at a Catholic place. And dance, which will be presented as a prayer by artists of different countries. And all to give glory to the Holy Spirit. There it is again. And to thank him for all that he does every day in our lives. Father Renero Cantomesa, pontifical preacher. I mean, this is all cited. But glorify, wait a minute. Glorify the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not glorified. The Holy Spirit's job is is to glorify Christ. Christ is the one we glorify because through glorifying Christ, we glorify the Father. There's an order to things, but this is very subtle. And again, this is how the devil gets you. He can't get you with Christ because Christ is the truth made flesh. Christ is the absolute truth. You cannot compromise with Christ. It's very clear what he taught, what he believes, who he is. If you believe in transubstantiation and I don't, 
we can't unite. We have no fellowship because that is the truth and the lie do not mix. Oil and water do not mix. But when you start glorifying the Holy Spirit, who is responsible for experiences, which of course, yes, the Holy Spirit is responsible for experiences because God gives visions. He gives the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And of course, there are experiences we have. We experience God, but there are also false spirits. And when you unite around experiences, you do so at the cost of doctrine. You don't need to worry about that pesky doctrinal stuff with transubstantiation and the Eucharist and, you know, what day do you worship as the rest day? Was it Sunday or Saturday? These things are just, you know, they're just, let's not fight over doctrine. We all have spiritual experiences. So really what's happening is the Holy Spirit is bringing everything together. So let's all, you know, bring everything under one church. That's what Christ wants, right? He said, uh, he said we should be of one mind, didn't he? <clears throat> do you see how the devil gets you? with working both sides and using scripture, it is incredibly subversive. If you don't have an understanding of history and the Bible, it's very easy to believe that these things that you read are good things. And in fact, they're really bad. This is from Sacrosanctum Concilium, Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy, December 4th, 1963. This is a papal document from the Vatican, so we're going to read something from it. Let's see what we have here. Number 30, point number 30. To promote active participation, the people should be encouraged to take part of means to take part by means of acclamations, responses, psalmody, antiphons, and songs, as well as by actions, gestures, and bodily attitudes. And at the proper times, all should observe a reverent silence. So this is basically guidelines from the Vatican in the 60s around Vatican II. <clears throat> Things were shifting. Things were shifting that were starting to unify the liturgy of the Catholic religion, the Mass, with Protestants. You see, it's, it's, it was a little too dry before, so now we need to spice it up. We need to start putting music in there. We need to start putting, you know, bodily... This was in the 60s. And we need to start putting bodily movements and gestures and hallelujah and praise the, praise the Lord with your hands up in the air and put some artists in there and get the drum to beat in the background to foster obedience. What do you see today as people going to church? It's a rock concert. People go to church, there's a band usually, and you get some music and go, that becomes your, <clears throat> excuse me, my voice is getting a little hoarse, but that becomes your experience of faith is whether you feel high on the music or not as opposed to being fed by the word and learning something new about Christ and your relationship with him that day. You see what's going on? This is all a Catholic invention designed to slowly shepherd people into the mother church. And again, the Bible predicted all of these things. They will be successful. They will be successful. So you have to realize that. This next thing, Pope Francis discovers Oh gosh, so many freaking ads, man. Pope Francis discovers charismatic movement, a gift to the whole church. Of course it's a gift. Look at these people. There's These are Catholics. These are Catholics with their arms in the air and their hallelujah. What's going to distinguish between this and people at Hillsong or Bethel? I mean, I think Hillsong recently canceled its relationship with the Southern Baptist Convention. 
And so they're not no longer affiliated with them. So what's going to distinguish them between them and Catholics? Pretty soon, there's going to be a unified, you know, one faith Catholic or one faith uh, concert of some kind. And look, see, we all had such a great time. We all had the Holy Spirit and oh my, we're all raising our hands. How do you measure faith? Do you measure it with external things or do you measure it with internal things? Let's look at the spiritual exercises. Gosh, this is a whole nother can of worms. This is on Wikipedia. The spiritual exercises composed in the 1500s are a set of Christian meditations, contemplations. There's that word again, Christian mysticism, and prayers written by Ignatius of Loyola, which is the founder and theologian, Spanish priest, founder of Society of Jesus. He was the original Jesuit general. Very interesting fellow. They were composed with the intention of helping participants in religious retreats to discern the will of God in their lives, leading to a personal commitment to follow Jesus, whatever the cost. This is an interesting statement because if you know anything about these exercises and what they do, it's really obedience training. It's mind control. It's it, They're pretty crazy. You're going into a trance-like state designed to make you completely obedient to the Jesuit general. So when they say commitment to follow Jesus, what they really mean is commitment to be a follower of the Jesuits. Because, you know, they conflate following Jesus with being part of the society of Jesus. And so when they say commitment to follow Jesus, what they're really meaning is a commitment to the Jesuits, whatever the cost. It's the ultimate secret society. But let's keep going. He also spent much of his time praying in a cave nearby. Isn't that interesting? Joseph Smith, Muhammad, Ignatius of Loyola. Start seeing some similarities here, don't you? Where he practiced rigorous ascetism. There you go again with this workspace salvation. During this time, Ignatius experienced a series of visions and formulated the fundamentals of his spiritual exercises. Who were the visions from, I wonder? I don't think they were from God. He would later refine and complete the exercises when he was a student in Paris. So let's see a little more. Morning, afternoon, and evening will be the times of the examinations. The morning is to guard against a particular sin or fault. The afternoon is a fuller examination of the same sin or a defect. There will be a visual record with the the tally of the frequency of sins or defects during each day. In it, the letter G will indicate days with capital G for Sunday. Isn't it interesting how this says capital G and how the Freemasons have a capital G and their compass symbol? Three kinds of thoughts, my own and two from outside, one from good spirit and the other from the bad spirit. This is occultism. This is mysticism. This is designed to break your mind into two so that you can be trained into obedience. If you know, we're not going to do too much on this stuff, but if you know anything about these exercises, it's occult. And I want you to see, though, this was five, six hundred years ago. I want you to see that these things are not new at all. In fact, they are very, very old. Ignatius was deeply influenced by the golden legend, which he read was especially attracted by the extraordinary feats of penance performed by the Egyptian monks of the desert, whose lives and deeds were were recounted in the golden legend. The basis of spiritual exercise is pictorial imaginings in which one brings every sense under the impact of the imagination. So you're fully entranced in whatever you're doing. And the Bible tells you to be sober-minded. So did God give Ignatius these visions? I don't think so. In an exercise called composition, 
which is seeing the place, the imagination is clothed with visible form. The object is fixed and the imagination becomes reality. Today we call this exercise visualization. Law of attraction, all that stuff that you know about from the personal growth movement, where do you think it comes from? And it's practice form and it is practice form primary to tertiary education levels and forms the basis of most religious experiences in the world today. Moral judgment becomes suspended and subject to the experience or supervisor rather than the absolute standard of God's word, which is exactly why the Bible tells you to be sober-minded. Why? Because the devil is prowling like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We are not to be getting into trance-like states. We are not to be getting into psychedelic states. You have to be very careful with these things. Hypnosis, anything that takes your mind offline, God did not intend you to be offline because that's when you are susceptible. Your judgment faculties are there for a reason, to help you discern between what is right and what is wrong using God's word. But if you suspend those, which is what all of these things have in common, don't think, don't think so much. Let's not think about doctrine. Don't think, don't think, don't think. Just, you know, just just flow, bro. Just flow with the experience and let, uh, let the spirit guide. What spirit is that? I wonder. Here's the next one. Jesuit origins of Pentecostalism. Gosh, such an interesting, you know, article. But we're just, we'll just read this first part. Today I read this paragraph from the Spiritual Journal of Ignatius Loyola, dated February 11th, 1544. This is from, uh, from Ignatius now. Later, in order to examine and discuss the election I had made, I took out the reasons I had written down to examine them. I prayed to Our Lady, which again, it's Lucifer in the occult, and then to the Son and then to the Father to give me their spirit to examine and distinguish, although I was speaking of something already done and felt a deep devotion in certain lights with some clearness of view, I sat down, considering, as it were in general, whether I should have complete or partial revenue or nothing at all, and I lost all desire to see any reasons. At this moment, other lights came to me, namely how the Son first sent the apostles to preach in poverty, and afterwards the Holy Spirit, giving his Spirit and the gifts of tongues, confirmed them, and thus the Father and the Son sending the Holy Spirit, all three persons confirmed the mission. Very deceived man, very deceived, he was communing with spirits, pretending to be other things. And basically, I mean, again, you can look into the Jesuit origins of Pentecostalism, but the Ignatian exercises were over 500 years ago. <clears throat> These exercises were designed to subvert your, your conscious thought and, and submit you to a spirit. Okay, now this is, this is a book, uh, let's see, what is this book? This book is called The Pentecostal Thing, I believe. Yeah, it's called Pentecostal Thing and the Jesuits. It's a long book, but I mean, you can look through it. Look at this Look at this title, Studies in the Spirituality of the Jesuits. The Pentecostal Thing and the Jesuits by John C. Hawley, S.J. This is a Jesuit who wrote it. They're admitting that the Pentecostal movement is a Jesuit invention. Okay, you can look through that book if you want. I'm not going to look too too much of it, but it's written by a Jesuit. So they're, you know, they're they're up front that they're the mother of harlots. I turn your attention now to something else called hesychasm. This is from the Greek Orthodox side of things, which again is pretty much just like Roman Catholicism. Hesychasm is a contemplative, there's the word again, 
monastic tradition in the Eastern Christian traditions of the Eastern Catholic Church and Eastern Orthodox Church, in which stillness, hesychia, is sought through uninterrupted Jesus prayer, whatever that is. While rooted in early Christian monasticism, it took its definitive form in the 14th century at Mount Athos. So by the time Ignatius was doing his spiritual exercises, these things were already established by 200 years. Addition of psychosomatic techniques. St. Nicophorus of the St. Nicophorus the Hesychast, 13th century, a Roman Catholic who converted to the Eastern Orthodox faith and became a monk at Mount Athos, advised monks to bend their heads toward the chest, attach the prayer to their breathing while controlling the rhythm of their breath and to fix their eyes during prayer on the middle of the body, concentrating the mind within the heart in order to produce nepsis or watchfulness. While this is the earliest attestation of psychosomatic techniques in the Hesychast prayer, according to the Callistos, where its origins may well be far more ancient, of course, influenced by the Sufi practice of Dakir, the memory and invocation of the name of God, which in turn may have been influenced by yoga practices from India, though it's also possible that Sufis were influenced by the early Christian monasticism. So what it, what's, what am I driving at here with all this stuff? This stuff is as old as time. And if you, if you look into Kundalini, there's plenty of people who have come out of that stuff who testify that, yes, there's not much difference between today's modern charismatics and Kundalini practices in India where they're like gyrating and shaking and there's, they're getting spiritual experiences and they feel energy and all this stuff. What's going on? Something's happening. They're not fake. I mean, some people are faking it, but some people are genuinely having these experiences because they don't have discernment. They think it's the Holy Spirit. Look at this, the yellow book by Samuel on Weor, Thelema Press, an occult situation. But let's see what this book says, the yellow book. From the introduction, the adorable mother Kundalini is the burning fire of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is an occult writer. She is Mary, Maya, Isis, Adonia, Insoberta, Rhea, Sibelis, etc., etc., etc. She has thousands of adorable names. She, in this case, is really he, which is Lucifer. She is love, electricity, who is the prince of the power of the air, universal magnetism, cosmic force. The laws of cohesion and planetary gravity were created by the mother of all adoration, all of the brilliant, sparkling, and palpitating planets in the inalterable, adorable, infinite space rest within the detectable or delectable bosom of the Blessed Mother Goddess of the world. The Lady of Supreme Adoration takes her children by the hand and guides them along the dangerous path of the razor's edge. The Divine Mother is entwined three and a half times with the Cochneal Church, whatever that is. The Lady of All Adoration opens the seven apocalyptic churches of the spirit, spinal medulla, so some sort of chakra thing with the churches. I mean, this is all just new age mumbo jumbo. We must search for the divine mother within our heart temple. The cross of the in, of the initiation is received within the temple of the heart. She, the adorable lady of love, is the only one who has the power of awakening her children within the womb of the profound universal spirit of life. I don't even know what this stuff means, but the mind must become a serene lake without tempests. So here it is again. Calm your mind. Don't think. Don't think. Don't think so hard. Just just let your judgment. Don't judge. Don't be judgmental. So that it will reflect the picture of the starry sky. Oh gosh, a, a clean mind just reflect an empty mind reflect 
starry skies. Really what an empty mind means is that you're going to make an empty canvas that another spirit can write upon. When the mind is quiet and silent, the Divine Mother is then pleased with us. Of course she is, because she can influence you. This is our blessing. Peace is possible only by controlling the mind. The purity of thought guides the yogi towards perfection. We must venerate the masters and we must practice our esoteric exercises filled with burning faith. The initiates with faith will become ineffable beings. Wisdom and love will shine in the minds of those who have reached samadhi, the ecstasy of saints. All of our beloved disciples can become true masters of samadhi with this book of flaming fire. I don't know about you, but I don't want a book of flaming fire. That's for sure. And it's very clear what these people believe. These are occultists. But if that's the case, do you see now the parallel between all of these things, between Helena Blavatsky, the New Age, Kundalini, these ancient practices, hesychasm, the spiritual exercises, the charismatic movement that suddenly is sweeping the earth and uniting Protestants and Catholics? What's really happening here? What's happening is a counterfeit spirit of the beast. How do we get here? The Roots of Pentecostalism Gnostics by Tim Now. This is a fantastic article. I'm not going to read most of it. There's a part at the end I want to read, but I highly recommend you check it out. Again, I will cite it. It's from Reformation, I think, Anglicanism.blogs, but it's a blog, but very well-documented historical step-by-step history that you can see from practically a few centuries after Christ to all the way in the modern age, how we got here with this whole Pentecostal, charismatic, worshiping the Holy Spirit instead of Jesus type of thing. But I want to focus on just, and at the end you can see a summary. He summarizes all the main points of the history. It's a long article, but it's a good read. If you're into this kind of stuff, I highly recommend it. Okay, ecstatic utterances are and were practiced by the prophets of Aphrodite, female and male prostitutes whose influence infiltrated the church in Corinth, priestesses at Delphi. In ancient times, the practice of speaking in unintelligible languages during religious ecstasy was not unknown. From 11th century BC, Egypt came reports of ecstatic speech, and later in the Greek world, the prophetess of Delphi and the Sibylline priestesses spoke in unknown tongues. Amongst the Roman mystery religions, the Dionysian cult was known for this practice. This is from Millard Erickson's Christian Theology. Virgil, in his Aeneid, stated that the pagan Sibylline oracles on the island of Delos spoke in ecstatic utterances. Shakers, established in the U.S. in 1776 by Mother Anne Lee, who claimed she was the embodiment of God and false Christ. Remember the second beast that looks like a lamb, speaks like a dragon? USA, baby. Declared that all sex is evil. To purge the sexual desire, she instituted the practice of dancing around naked while speaking in tongues. They also had seances to call up Indian guides. So communing with the dead, doing orgy-like things and all kinds of weird stuff. Irvingites, founded by Edward Irving. Irving taught Christ was a sinner and the second coming would be in 1864, which obviously was not true. False prophet. Joseph Smith stated, arise upon your feet. Speak or make some sound. Continue to make sounds or some kind, and the Lord will make a tongue or language out of it. Buddhists, Hindus, Muslims, Pentecostals, charismatic word of faith. All these people have had ecstatic experience. This is not new, folks. To go laba laba ding dong juba luba liba, that's not, that's not speaking in tongues. Because the Holy Spirit was giving the gift to people to speak in actual tongues. 
And that's, you can look in Acts when they talk about Pentecost. People understood the gospel in their own native tongue. That's why it was a miracle. And in fact, it's told to us that if we do experience such a thing and there's no interpreter, then keep it to yourself. It's pointless. You're not edifying anybody by going, laba, laba, luba, laba, gim, gam, guba. Like, what is that? I mean, that's just nonsense. If you believe that that's holy or edifying or good, you're seriously lacking discernment. I've met people who are genuine believers, but they're very deceived about this. The spiritual gifts definitely still exist, but we have to be use very high discernment because the beast is using this as well to unify people back into it. With all these false prophets, with the NAR movement, with the charismatic movement, as you can tell how old it is, it's all just pagan stuff moving back into mystery Babylon, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. The Pentecostalism controversy. This is from a Catholic website, catholicculture.org. And they say a couple things. Today, there are Catholic Pentecostals who insist there is a new outpouring of the Holy Spirit with all his charismatic gifts upon the Catholic Church. Interestingly, interestingly, a similar claim was made 70 years ago by the founders of the modern Pentecostal sects. The Jesuit scholar, Father John Hardin, has explained the origins of modern Pentecostalism. As a species of, this is a quote now, as a species of Protestant Christianity, Pentecostalism may be traced to the ministry of Edward Irving, which we kind of briefly mentioned. Pastor of a Presbyterian church in London, Irving had witnessed speaking in tongues and some cases of healing in Glasgow. He reported back to his congregation in London that if only the people spray, if they only prayed earnestly, they too might be filled with the gifts of the Spirit. Soon after, some of his parishioners began to speak in strange tongues and prophesy. By 1832, he had started his own congregation. So again, just false prophets. His disciples, known as the Irvingites, were soon followed by Quakers, Shakers, and Mormons. And yet another sectarians who similarly preached that external signs are an essential part of integral Christian belief and experience. Signs and wonders, just like the Jews in Jesus' time. They all demanded a sign. In the United States, sharp doctrinal divisions manifest themselves among the followers of John Wesley, the founder of Methodism. The latter, as Father Hardin notes, had never much been concerned with creedal orthodoxy. Experience of conversion and an awareness of the Spirit had always been more prominent in Wesleyan thought. When Wesleyan holiness groups who stressed a baptism in the Holy Spirit united with the disciples of Irving, modern Pentecostalism may be said to have been born. The Pentecostalist emphasis on the baptism of the Spirit seems to have been derived from Wesley's doctrine of entire sanctification. Whereas the Puritans had believed the process of Christian perfection was never consumed in this life, which is true, you are never consummated in this life, you are always battling the flesh, and entire sanctification comes only at, at or after death, Wesley was to insist on the possibility of the believers achieving an instantaneous completion of sanctification at any time in his life. That's impossible. But if you're deceived, it's possible to you in your mind. Though Wesley never lost sight of a gradual growth in grace, even among such perfect souls, his unfortunate use of the word sanctification, where he meant entire sanctification, was to cause much confusion among his followers. According to the earliest Pentecostalists, Christians who have already had the experience of conversion, which is necessary for salvation, should seek a second blessing. This was another more profound experience, which accomplished the believer's entire sanctification and permitted him to lead life, a life of moral perfection, untroubled by any 
interior root of sin. So first off, that's just fake news, but there's a little more to read here. The most dramatic event in Pentecostal history occurred in New Year's Eve 1900 before Charles Fox Parham, a lay congregational preacher, left on a mission trip. He instructed his students at Bethel Healing Home in Topeka to investigate the subject of baptism in the Holy Spirit. When he returned, they told him that the gift of the tongues was conclusively this spirit baptism. They asked him to impose hands on one of their me- on one of their number, a Miss Osnum. The moment he did so, he so she was filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in several languages, besides talking in a strange tongue that not even accomplished linguists could understand. Before long, most of the students at Bethel became similarly similarly gifted and went out to preach the new gospel. The new gospel to all who would hear them. So this is actually, I mean, look, this is a Catholic website, but of course they're, they're more traditional. So they're against, <laughs> they're against the charismatic Catholics. Again, it's just another dialectic, but what's going on here? Well, first off the history of Pentecostalism, if you know anything about these people who started Pentecostalism, it, it has a very shady history the Erwin, Benjamin Harden Erwin, who believed in uh, baptism of fire, he was an alcoholic, he was a womanizer, he was abusive. I mean, these people have very sordid pasts. And again, not to say that that necessarily discredits what they've realized or taught, but look at everything else and it's just clear who is guiding them. Because these beliefs teach you ultimately that, oh, there's always some new, you know, look at all these charismatics today, they're chasing revival. Oh, oh, there's a revival. Let's go. There's a revival. Let's let's go. There's a revival. What is revival? What is revival? We're going to look at that really quick, but I want to remind you a few things. What the Bible says, Matthew six verse seven. When when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. This is a reference to the pagan practice of mantras, of of just vibrating your body and saying like. You know, one thing over and 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 over again. You get this this mindlessness that is part of mysticism, and that is what hesychasm and spiritual exercise, all this stuff, you know, plays off of these pagan practices that are designed to subvert your conscious mind so that you can be influenced by spirits. And Christ warned against that. Again, First Peter five eight: Be sober minded. Because your uh, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. John, First John four, uh, verse one: Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. The Bible warns you over and over again. Daniel three. This is what we were just talking about. And the herald proclaimed aloud: You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages. And when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigorn, harp bagpipe, and every other kind of a musical instrument, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Now, this is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that basically were saved by probably Christ, pre-incarnate apparition or you know manifestation of Christ. But this is a type and shadow, a foreshadowing of the mark of the beast. The music that's coming and telling you to obey, to do things a certain way. If you refuse, you're going to be thrown in the fire. But of course, this story reminds us that Christ saves us one way or another. Either he will give us the strength to endure, and either way, he's going to give us the crown at the end of the race because he 
gives us our strength to endure. But nonetheless, these things are very old. They're as old as time. Nothing new. So this whole idea of revival and, and Pentecostalism, hypercharismatic revival, this is a false theology because the Bible says that there's going to be a great falling away. Should we expect to fall a, a, a revival at the end of the age? Well, if you're a post millennial and you believe that we have to usher in this Christian nationalist system, which is really the Antichrist, then you believe that that's a good thing, that there is revival. It's getting better. It has to get better. No, it's not. The Bible tells you it's getting worse. It's going to get really, really bad and then super bad with the mark of the beast and then Christ will come and destroy all these evil people and save everybody. That's the timeline of the events portrayed in Revelation and everywhere else in the Bible. But ultimately, look, the revival in the Bible when you look at revival examples in the Bible, in the Old Testament, it's always it was always about obedience and repentance and return back to the Word of God. It was never about, oh my gosh, we're playing music and having these spiritual experiences. Now, of course, yes, there were celebrations that people had. David was very musical with his psalms and they had the temple and, you know, of course that was part of it. But revival was about people returning back into a relationship with God. Genuine conviction of the heart, repentance that leads back to faith because there was a breach of faith. Not, you know what, I'm feeling lonely, so I'm going to go to a group where there's a lot of young people like me and there's a cool hip band playing Jesus stuff and I feel like I finally belong. I get a feeling. Do you see that, the difference there? I hope you do because, you know, this stuff is a touchy subject. But look, I'm not judging individual hearts that go to these revivals because God will use everything for the good for the people he's chosen to save. However, for us as Christians looking on the outside, we have to have discernment with these things because they are not as they appear. And again, this, the spirit guiding this movement is a false counterfeit spirit designed to bring people back into the mother church. So, couple closing Ideas and thoughts here. Is there a false spirit invading church? Yes. Is the second beast who calls down fire and basically calling down signs and wonders, is that manifesting a false Holy Spirit? The answer is yes. You know, the the second beast is a parallel to prophets like Elijah where they were, were calling down fire from heaven, which was true Holy Spirit action to destroy the prophets of Baal. And you remember even with Moses that the the, the the court jesters or whatever, the court magicians of Pharaoh, they were able to replicate some of the signs and wonders that God was doing up to an extent. I think that's by design. I think God was showing us that, look, there's going to be some level of power that these principalities have, and you have to use discernment. I think God allowed that on purpose so that we would see, look, they can copy me to an extent, obviously. Not all the way, but just a little bit of it. They can copy it. So you have to, you can't be so easily sold. And so the point is that this second B system that we see in the United States, where it's the union of culture and politics and religion and, and everything, all this stuff we've been talking about, it is working false signs and wonders through the charismatic movement, through the things we saw in culture in the last episode, through religion and politics being unified. All these are signs and wonders that make people wander or wonder after the beast. And wow, 
the Pope is so great. Oh my gosh, Catholicism is, you know, we really have an awesome religion here. We have a great system that we need to incorporate throughout the world because then Jesus will come. Do you see where it's going on? They can't unite around Jesus. They cannot unite around Jesus. But they can unite around spiritual experiences, which everybody can have. Even Hindus can have spiritual experiences. How do you distinguish between a kundalini session and a Pentecostal movement? Good question. If you see them side by side, they're really not very different. These hyper-charismatic movements where they're just gyrating and shaking and hallelujah and just screaming and just getting crazy. This is, you're, you're losing control of your body. Passion and loudness and frothing at the mouth is not faith. Faith is the things that we don't see. So Jesus is the truth, and we have to unite around Jesus because the thing that looks like a lamb and speaks like a dragon is going to fool many, many people. And again, this stuff has been a lot of information to to present to you, and there's so much more. There really is so much more, and I want to close with a few scriptures that are very key on all of these things so that now that you know the political, religio-political, cultural side of it, you also have the foundation in scripture to defend these beliefs. Again, John 1, or the first letter of John, uh, chapter 4, tells us to test the spirits. How do you test the spirits? Well, you test them with the word of God. And again, like with the Fatima experience, you just simply test what she's saying, she in quotation marks, with what the word of God says. And we saw very clearly that it's completely anti-Christ. It's anti-gospel, anti-Jesus being the only way, the truth, the life. The Fatima was saying, oh, Jesus wants people to, to worship me and to commit to me. Well, no, that's not consistent with the Bible, so that's a false spirit. What does that mean if that's a false spirit that actually appeared and people are believing is Mary? What are the implications of that? The implications is you can't trust your own understanding, just like the Bible says. But, you know, in Hebrews 11, it says, faith is the thing that is unseen. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is not something we see with our eyes. Faith is what we don't see. That's the whole point of faith. Faith is not a worldly manifested thing like these people are conflating. They are saying that manifestations and, you know, unless you have these manifestations, you're not really, you're not really, you don't have the Holy Spirit. Do you see the problem here? The Holy Spirit is now equated to passion and shaking your hands and, oh, I really believe this and I'm really just ah, going crazy. That's not the Holy Spirit. I mean, it can be, depends on the situation, but most of the time it's not. The Holy Spirit is a spirit of peace, calm, conciseness, clarity, right? Of course there's passion. Sometimes it's important to be passionate, but passion is not the only quality of the Holy Spirit. And this is where they get it wrong. And so it's making people look to fleshly things. It's all about bringing your attention to the flesh. This is Satan's strategy from day one. Amos 3, verse 3. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Ecumenism is not the truth. People cannot unite around things like transubstantiation because it's not the truth. Either you believe in it or you don't. But you can unite around spiritual experiences. So what is the truth? Well, John 17, 17. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. God's word is truth. Psalm 11, uh, 111, or sorry, 119 verses 160. 
the sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. God's word is truth, over and over again. John 14, 6, I am the truth, the way, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the word of God. Do you see a parallel here throughout Scripture? Scripture says the word is truth. God, or Jesus, is the word made flesh. Jesus said that he's the truth and the life. He is the truth. Jesus is, Jesus is the uniting point that we have to unite around. He's the anchor. He's the one that you have to form all your doctrine around, not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit plays an adjunctive role, a supportive role. Jesus is the superstar. And if you unite around the support, you're not going to form right doctrine. You have to unite around the superstar. So you have to say, okay, what did Jesus say? What did he say about himself? What did he say about you and me? What did he say about the world, about how to get saved? What did Jesus say? And you form your doctrine around that. Now, the Catholic Church has formed a spirit or fleshly doctrine. Eat my body, drink my blood. That is ridiculous. And we looked at all the other things in a previous episode in Exposing Babylon. But it's, it's all a fleshly counterfeit religion. But you can't unite around Jesus because their version of Jesus and the gospel is a lie. So they have to find other ways to unite. Now, we know in Acts 5 through 32 that the Holy Spirit is given to those who obey. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Does the Pope obey God from everything you've learned so far? And hopefully, if you've been with me in the previous episodes, do these people obey God? No. So do they have the Holy Spirit? No, they don't. The Spirit is not, the Holy Spirit is not guiding them. A spirit is for sure guiding them, and they feel things, and they feel even maybe power and other other things, but it's not the Holy Spirit guiding them. It's the unholy spirit, that's for sure. Now let's talk about speaking in tongues really quick. Well, in Acts 2, where Pentecost happened, the coming of the Holy Spirit, divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, if you just stop there, you would think that this is just gibberish, but let's keep going. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? So what's what's the point here? The point is that the language that, or the tongues, it was a supernatural event where God was bringing people back together in a supernatural way by letting people who had no clue speak tongues that they had never spoken before, actual tongues. So evidenced by the other people from different nations who said, wow, I'm hearing my own language. Compare this to the Tower of Babel where God separated the languages. And it's, again, it's it's a type and antitype. He He's bringing them under... His his banner, his church, he's bringing it under one mind and one organization. And that organization is decentralized. It's not an institution. It's the fellowship we have with each other and with Christ, ultimately, which is what the church was always meant to be. But you can look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And verse 14, you know, all these verses explain to you how speaking in tongues should be. For if I pray in a tongue... My spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. 
I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? Very straightforward. And for you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. And that's what really it's all about. This is, you know, this this whole chapter is about speaking in tongues. And look, the whole point is you have to build somebody up. When you see Kenneth Copeland, I mean, it's just it's just a joke, really. It's just clown world, man. And he's in his church. He's like, like, is anybody being built up, or are they just witnessing you being giving your body over to demons so that they can make a fool of you and you can make a fool of Christianity? which I don't really consider Kenneth Copeland a Christian, but nevertheless, to people who are unbelievers, they say, this is Christianity? Just gibberish and, and blib, blab, blue, blah, blue, and that's that's God? No, it's not. It's a demon. Or it's just your own stupidity. Now, again, gifts still exist. I'm not a cessationist, and this is a whole other topic, but the gifts are there to spread the gospel. God gives gifts to everybody as he so wills. Some people he gives gifts to write. Some people he gives gifts to speak. Some people he gives even healing gifts. The gifts still exist, but we have to use very high discernment to see if something somebody is doing is in alignment with the will of God because there are false signs and wonders. Now, we know that from a lot of different places, but Luke 10, verse 17 through 20 we know an important point about all of this is that Christ warns them, look, verse 19, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So look, just because you have power over some of these things, don't don't feel like, oh, now I'm, don't let it go to your head, basically. Right? Rejoice that you're saved. And yet you see people like Benny Hinn, you see people like Kenneth Copeland and all these people who are false prophets, and even some of them working false signs and wonders. What are they doing? They're doing it for themselves and for getting money. And of course, there's so many people that don't see that. They actually idolatize and believe in these people as their saviors. So they completely don't see that they're snakes and wolves in sheep's clothing. Now, again, in Acts, the Bible is so clear about these things, man. I mean, Acts 1, chapter 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. What is the word power referring to? When Christ says you're going to get power, does that mean you're going to be able to, like, make bread out of stones and, you know, feed the 5,000 and walk on water like I did? No, that's not what it means. In fact, one of the verses that, that these charismatics love to throw at you is John 14, 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. See, Jesus said you're going to do even greater works. If you just have a mustard seed of faith, hallelujah, you're going to be able to, you know, make trees talk and do all kinds of stuff. Really? That's not what Jesus was talking about when he said to the apostles they're going to have power and you know, that you're going to do greater works than these. What What is, first off, the purpose of the works that Christ did? The purpose of the works was to glorify God and to reveal the gospel, to point to salvation under him and to glorify the Father. 
All these works were done to glorify God. So if we understand works as a way to glorify God, then ultimately, even you going out and spreading the gospel to 20 homeless people is a work that glorifies God. That's a work. And in the day and age we live today, remember, Jesus was just in Jerusalem and Israel. Relatively speaking, during his life, he didn't come in contact with that many people, relatively speaking. Of course, his impact is greater than anybody in history, but I'm talking about when he lived as a human being in Jerusalem and in in surrounding areas. His contact with people wasn't that huge of a contact. Compare that to today, where you can go on YouTube and share the gospel with somebody, and you get a million views on something. Of course, YouTube's probably going to ban it if it's the real gospel, but the point is the same. We have technology and ways that we can do greater works, right, in that sense, in the sense of reaching people and more people quickly. We can do greater works than these because of today, the day, they, the, the day that we live in today. Jesus is not saying you're going to do you're going to raise even more people from the dead. You're going to feed even thousands and thousands more people than I did. Has anybody done that in history? So anytime anybody anybody anytime somebody throws John 14:12 at you, who's a charismatic, you should ask them very plainly, has anybody in history other than Christ raised other people from the dead? Has anybody fed 4,000 or 5,000 people? Has anybody walked on water? Has anybody, you know, done any of the things that healed blind people? Has anybody done any of the things that Jesus did or greater things than Jesus? Really? I don't think so. That's not what this is talking about. Because again, their eyes are on the flesh. Great signs and wonders. Unless there's signs and wonders, then, you know, we can't believe. Just like the Jews. We need signs and wonders. Otherwise, we can't believe. Christ was not talking about, you're going to do these magical things great supernatural things, you're going to do great works of faith. Great works of faith, not great miracles. I mean, some people may have had those gifts throughout history, but that's not what this is talking about. Now, the role of the Holy Spirit has a couple things that we have to remember because these people glorify the Holy Spirit. And they're using the Holy Spirit, the unknown God, to unify people under a counterfeit spirit, which is, it's fascinating how it's all playing through. But look, John 16, 8 through 11. When he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So the Holy Spirit has three important roles, according to Jesus. The first role is to convict the world of sin. Now, that doesn't mean sin like you had a dirty thought but sin because they do not believe in me. We're talking the sin of unbelief is the main and first sin that people will be convicted of. So the Holy Spirit is convicting the unbelievers. This is another kind of sly teaching, especially in the Armenian churches, the synergist churches that rely on free will, that the Holy Spirit is convicting you of sin. Well, if you're a believer, he's actually not convicting you of sin. If you're an unbeliever, he's convicting you of the sin of unbelief that you have ignored God all your life. And if you're elect, you will respond to that with faith because it it is God's will for you to be regenerated. Now, of course, sometimes it might take a few tries. <laughs> we all can relate to that. But the point is, nonetheless, the sin here is a sin of unbelief. Now, the next line is concerning righteousness. 
because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. What is he saying here? Well, something very simple. Look, I'm going away. You're going to feel like you're not saved anymore. You don't have me around to protect you. Don't worry. He's going to convict you of righteousness. So for the genuine believer, the Holy Spirit's job is, yes, of course, he's going to bring things to your attention that you're doing wrong. But the Holy Spirit doesn't condemn you. The Holy Spirit reminds you of your righteousness in Christ. Not because of your works or your righteousness, but because of Christ's righteousness. That even though he's in heaven and he's not here yet, that you are okay, you're going to make it. Believe and trust in him. That's the voice of the Holy Spirit. And of course, the final thing is to, to uh, condemn the world because it's going to be judged. Like remind you, look, there's a time that God has appointed the world to be judged. There's an end to history. So get right with God. Otherwise, you know, that's it. So the Holy Spirit does three things. Condemn, con, convicts unbelievers of their lack of faith in Jesus. It convicts believers of righteousness, that they're righteous in the shed blood of Christ as a propitiation for our sins. And it convicts the world of judgment because the world is going to be judged. It also testifies of Jesus. John 15, 26, when the helper comes whom I ascend uh, to you from the Father, the spirit of truth, it's the spirit of truth. There's a lot of spirits out there, but this is the spirit of truth. Who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. It's all about Jesus. Points back to Christ. We also know from John 16, a little later, when Jesus says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. Again, spirit of truth. For, the, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Holy Spirit glorifies Christ. Holy, Holy Spirit testifies of Christ. Holy Spirit reminds people that Christ was a propitiation for sins. Holy Spirit uh, convicts the world of sin, of unbelief, and of judgment. Do and now do any of these biblical things come up in this hyper charismatic movement that you see that's supposedly taking the world by storm? The answer is no. It's it's not about the truth. It's about the unknown God. Who's the unknown God? The God of many names? The God of this world, perhaps? The unknown God. There's only one known, there's only one God, and that God has made himself known. There's no unknown God. But if you are an occultist and you say one thing for the goyim, for the sheep, and another for the people who are initiated, then yeah, the unknown God on the surface, oh, we're talking about the Holy Spirit, quote, quote, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, laugh, laugh. But really, it's Lucifer. Because that's what these people believe. Remember, all these people believe that Lucifer is the Savior. So look, this is just the tip of the iceberg. We did not talk today about new thought, new age, the New Age Christianity, progressive Christianity, the New Age movement, messianic sects, legalistic sects. Like, um, we talked a little about Hebrew roots, but not really. I mean, the holy name sects. Like, you have to say Yeshua, otherwise you're believing in a false Christ. I'll talk about that in the Mark of the Beast. There's a guy who believes... Some crazy things on the internet, and of course, there's, he's not the only one. But there's so many of these types of things that this is just the tip of the iceberg. And I'm not going to really focus on all these other things because it's, it's really 
it's there's no point. You could go forever and ever and ever and analyze and break these groups down. The point is that you see the bigger picture. The Bible, again, says don't go to the left or to the right over 16 times. The devil plays both sides, and the, the design is to get you to ping pong between you know, the two. Christ told us to walk the narrow road. So remember, the deadly wound was healed in 1929 when the Lateran Pact gave all the papal states back to the Vatican, and the spiritual wound has been healing for a while, since the French Revolution with the dialectics of left and right. And we are moving towards the final outcome, which is the Revelation 17 woman riding the beast. That woman riding the beast is the image of the beast. It's really the image of the beast being built right now, and it will result in the woman riding the beast, which is basically, it's a vision of how the papacy is going to control the world. This is already happening. I hope you see it. I hope you see that through the charismatic movement, the new thought movement, the new perspective on Paul, the progressive Christianity, new age, you know, Christian nationalism, all these kingdom entrepreneurs, kingdom builders, all these ecumenical efforts, all these ecumenical documents that were signed, the fusion of religion with everything and culture of politics. <laughs> Look, I hope that you get it's going to be even more pervasive than it ever was in history. When Constantine united the church and state and the papacy ruled the earth for 1260 years, yeah, it ruled for an iron fist and there was no separation between church and state. However, big asterisk, people didn't have phones. People didn't have little goggles that they could look through and have altered reality. People didn't have blockchain. People didn't have digital currency. People didn't have any of this to constantly press on their mind the ideology of the beast. Of course, people weren't as educated, but at the same time, you still kind of had some level of freedom to some extent. When this comes back, it's going to be so pervasive and so ubiquitous that it will be everywhere. And truly, just like the Bible says, if you reject this system, you will not be able to buy or sell. You will be kicked out or killed, one of the two. But I want to remind you that from Deuteronomy 13, False prophets can still work false miracles. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or the dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you. God has ordained these things, people, the good and the bad, to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So, if a false prophet tells you something and it doesn't come to pass, you know it's he's a false prophet. But if he tells you something and it does come to pass, watch his actions very closely. If he's leading you back to transubstantiation and uniting with the beast and it's a good thing and saying, oh, the Pope is just this amazing, beautiful guy and protest is over, then... That is a false sign and wonder. What you experience, what you feel, what you're being told is deception. So either way, you have to have discernment. How many of these types of leaders are there in the United States right now? I don't know. Countless, literally countless. God has ordained these things because he is testing his elect. Remember in the first, second centuries, Christians were being thrown to lions to perfect their suffering and their faith. And they endured. And who knows how it's going to turn out for us in this generation. But we are being tested. We are 
God is testing his elect, and he will persevere his elect. He's testing you, but he's going to make sure you persevere. So cling to the Lord and read your Bibles, study your history. Remember that many are going to say, Lord, Lord, let us in. And he's going to say, depart from you, you workers of lawlessness. Because why? Because works and miracles and wonders do not mean that you have a relationship with Christ. It is an internal thing. It is a state of the heart that only the Holy Spirit can measure. It is not for us to determine who's saved and who's not. But at the same time, we can judge by their works what they're doing, right? We can can determine that. And we know that the Christian life is an internal walk. It's not this external walk of signs and wonders and manifestations and mysticism and shaking and praying over and over and over and over and over again. This is pagan. This is paganism, and it is coming back into a hodgepodge, mystery Babylon, one world religion in these end times. It really is. So that's all I have for you today. I hope it's opened your eyes. This is just the tip of the iceberg. Next time we'll talk, I think, about Islam, the role of Islam in the end times. And again, this is just the bird's eye view, really all these things you can see, even with the bird's eye view, how much detail there is. I mean, it would take another 20 episodes to unpack all the things that I talked about today. And I'm not going to, because you could spend your whole life on that stuff. The point is to see. The point is to see, and I hope that you've seen. This is the point, that you have clear seeing of who the real power is, who the real Antichrist power is, and what it's doing to bring people back into worshiping the beast. The image of the beast is being built and it will be built, it will be completed. America is going to swing back to the right. Probably Trump will take that torch. He's born on a blood moon. He was inaugurated on a, Trump, on a blood moon. Illuminati, Freemason background, Jesuit education. Look, there's no good guys in government. He's going to come back, or somebody is going to come back, and they'll take the torch. They're going to move America back into Christian nationalism. It's going to move to the hardcore right. And that system, 2024 and beyond, I'm not setting any dates for anything, but 2024 is when the election's happening. Very likely, it's going to swing to the right. And if it doesn't, it'll swing to the right eventually because they're using all of this leftist stuff to make you sick of the left so much so that you demand unification of church and state, that you demand that we have Bibles back in schools. Again, sounds good, but who's going to be charged of that translation. Is it going to be the Dewey Reams Bible, the Jesuit Bible, or is it going to be the KJV or whatever? Think about that. So until next time, I hope, I know this has been longer, but I hope this has been an eye-opening experience for you and take care. God bless. Stay healthy and we'll see you next time.